Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have with us, I'm going to switch up the order now, Trainer Road in Cannondale's Amber Pierce. How are you doing, Amber? Hi, everybody. I'm doing good. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. And we have our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hi. And everybody. <laughs> What? I'm so excited. I feel like I'm supposed to say a particular thing. <laughs> no, no. You're, you're enough as you, Chad. And then our uh, last but not least, our CEO, Nate Pearson. How's it going, Nate? Hello. I'm good. You're riding on a high. We'll talk about that in a little bit, um, but you're doing you're doing real well right now. So first things first, thank you for tuning in. If you're joining us on YouTube, you can do so at youtube.com slash trainer road. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific is usually when we record the podcast and we stream live. So you can join us and you can answer your questions there. You can also watch the podcast, which... Sometimes we talk with our hands. Sometimes you do strange <laughs> things and you might want to check it out. Uh, maybe you want to see us live. I don't know, but it would be a blast to have you all join us and you can check it out on YouTube. You can let that play in the background too and listen to the podcast that way. You can subscribe to this podcast on YouTube, subscribe to it on whatever podcast app you're using as well. That way you don't miss an episode. Okay. With all of that said, submit your questions as well at trainerroad.com slash podcast. We appreciate those. We come through a lot of them this week and we came up with a set of questions that we feel like we can answer some fun, maybe even some controversial topics. And if you're looking at the title right now, you can tell carbs versus fat is one of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, uh, not, not quite a cage match, but we'll, we'll go into things here and, and get into some science. Uh, okay. We talked last week about, or two weeks ago now about, uh, Instagram contest that I wanted to have with folks using the hashtag get faster outside. And that's to use outside workouts. It's one of the features that, uh, that you can use as a train road subscriber. You can do all your training inside, and then you can also just flip a switch and you can, those workouts will push right over to your Garmin or your Wahoo. And it's awesome because you're able to train outside and we have tons of articles on how to make the experience even better, uh, optimizing your Garmin, finding the best routes, all that stuff. Uh, but with all that said, I wanted to share a quick testimonial on that and then announce the two winners because we've had two weeks now because of last week's special episode uh, from that one. So first things first, uh, this is from Janelle. And she says, I did antelope plus four outside on Sunday on my Garmin and had the best experience. I picked a nice long hill and just repeated it. The process was smooth and super easy for me to follow. And that's a really good approach is to find like consistency is more important than saying like, I need to find a one minute climb for my one minute intervals. Many times you can just do that one minute effort on anything consistent. So that can make it a little bit easier. Uh, she said, I had a pretty rough day at home with lots of on the go between family and home items. And what I appreciated the most was that the workout just told me what I had to do. I got an incredible workout without really having to make decisions or thinking too much. Hence, it was a hard effort, but somehow relaxing on my mind. So thanks for the great product. Uh, so that's awesome. Thanks, Janelle, uh, for using that. Uh, that decision fatigue becomes real when you're <laughs> dealing with kids and all the many other things that go on in life. So uh, two winners that, uh, we want to announce from the contest. And all you have to do is just take a picture of your ride that you're doing when you're doing your outside workouts with trainer road, and then upload it to Instagram with the hashtag get faster outside. And then we will always be paying attention to those and checking them out and encouraging you and cheering you on. And this week we have two winners and we'll pick a new one for the next week as well. Uh, first one is from, and I hope that this is, you know, we're dealing with usernames here. So I hope this is how you say your name. I apologize if not, but Ty AC. Um, or Tyacy, I'm not sure. Uh, and so let us, uh, we'll reach out to you on Instagram and, uh, congratulations on that. We'll be sending you some train road swag as well as Phil cook. So look in your DMS. We'll be sliding in there with some, uh, questions about your shipping addresses and then we can send you some cool stuff. 
pretty exciting stuff. That that the swag is very. None of us have any of it on right now. I don't think Amber maybe has a T-shirt on. I can't tell, but there we go. Nate's got the mug. Yep, Amber's got the shirt. The way. <laughs> <laughs> Amber's hair not included with the shirt. <laughs> uh, but yep, mugs and some awesome stuff. Super exclusive. Like only employees and maybe a handful of like podcast guests really have this sort of swag. So pretty cool stuff. Uh, and then the next thing before we get into some 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 interesting stuff from the ramp test is the successful athletes podcast. We had an episode that went up this week. It's been a huge hit and people are loving it. And you can subscribe to that podcast. Just search for successful athletes podcast on whatever podcast app you use, or you can look in the description on this YouTube video or in the podcast that you find here. It was with Zach Josie, and he is an athlete with dwarfism, and it's about all the different things that he has done to overcome dwarfism, but above all, his perspective on training. Like, um, so he has a rare form of dwarfism where, and you'll find out more about this in the podcast, but uh, he has a rare form of dwarfism where his limbs or his torso is more or less regular length, but his limbs themselves are disproportionately small. So you can imagine how difficult that would be when you're talking about triathlon, not only the bike fit side of things, but then also the technique side of things on running and swimming. And he went through all of that, but like the most impressive thing is his attitude and dedication toward training and how he just, he doesn't see himself as exceptional. I would say he just sees himself there. He sees his path as his path and he just knocks things down. Uh, super impressive. Gets up at 3 a.m. every day to train and gets it done. So then he can go through and do everything that he needs to. Goes to bed early to be able to do that. That's his path and he does it. So each one of us has some sort of unique path and challenge everything else and super motivating to hear that one. And we have another one coming up for you next week. These are published on Mondays with David Curtis. Uh, he's an athlete from Leadville, Colorado that had never done Leadville, never even thought about racing a mountain bike before. And we'll get all into that. Um, I won't spoil anything else, but it's really, really cool. So uh, that's going to be a great episode. And that's coming up this Monday. So successful athletes podcast. John, would it be fair to say, like, if you ever lack motivation or inspiration to listen to one of these podcasts and you'll get it back? Totally. Like, uh, yeah, we talk about this sometimes when we do this podcast and we're like, oh, we want to train now, like after this podcast, right? No, we need a group ride afterwards. Yeah. For a race. And <laughs> for sure. And after these podcasts, oh my gosh, it's like guaranteed every time. It just boosts the motivation a ton. It's super cool. You get to learn from them, actionable insights, but then also it's really motivating every single one of them that we've done and will continue to do. So uh, yeah, really exciting stuff. If you want to be a guest on the Successful Athletes podcast, there's a couple criteria you should know. Um, we want to know how you've used Trainer Road to accomplish whatever you deem successful. Like it doesn't have to be some sort of big race win, but how have you used Trainer Road to make that happen? And you can do that by letting us know, uh, just send me an email right now, Jonathan at trainerroad.com, And then we can go through there. So we did a ramp test this week. Let's talk about that. <laughs> uh, a live ramp test. And that was uh, live on YouTube. We had some audio issues by the way. And I apologize for that. Uh, that was my mistake and, and I've learned and hopefully we can be better for next time. That's the plan. So, but with that stated, we can tell you now about everything that went on in terms of the, the increases or, or changes, everything else that went on. So, uh, first let's start with you, Amber, you went up two Watts, right? I think two Watts. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So yeah. what was your training like leading up to it? And then what do you think contributed to that increase? Cause you had a massive increase the time before and you're still going up, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, so this was the second part of the general build plan. And the first part was the first four. So it's 
eight weeks long. So it was the first four weeks and then the second four weeks. So the first four weeks was really the first, um, structured training that I'd been doing that included some of those top end systems, specifically VO2 max. And one of the things that I've learned about myself over the years is I respond really, really well to the VO2 max zone work. Like that's really where that's kind of my moneymaker <laughs> when it comes to like the sweet spot and the threshold come back pretty easily to me, but the VO2 max is a little bit harder. But as soon as I start to focus on that and really do quality work in that zone, my fitness comes up quite a bit. So, um, I wasn't that surprised to get a big bump on the first four weeks. And then what, uh, what I felt like happened was that first four weeks was an introduction, the introduction of a, a big training stimulus relative to what I'd been doing before, but I hadn't been training so long that I hadn't really accumulated too much fatigue. So it was this really nice balance of increase in training stimulus without having that chronic load. Um, and so that got me a really big bump. It was like 30 Watts. And then this time around, I did the second four weeks of build, which is hard. And so my, my fatigue load was coming up, you know, so the nice thing is I'm continuing to progress my fitness, but I could tell that my legs were just a little bit heavier than they were for the last test. Um, but I'm just, I'm happy to just see continued progress. And one of the things I'm always saying, and this is a classic example is progress isn't linear. So yeah. <laughs> it's still progress, but it wasn't another 30 watt bump. That's a really good point because I, um, I, I've noticed that I respond differently. My FTP will go up with different sorts of training and different, like a uh, different, uh, amounts of training. If I've done that for an extended period of time, it will go up in different ways. But I'll, if I'm following the plan that's set for my goals, I'll be closer to the athlete I should become as a result of that plan. Right. And that's the important thing. So while it may go, it'd be amazing if we could just, every time we test go up 25 <laughs> Watts, right. That would be great. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that you aren't becoming the athlete that you're supposed to become right as a result of your plan, I should say. So exactly. So I know that I'm going to continue to build that fatigue, that kind of chronic load. Um, but I'm also trying to plan ahead too, because we have a lot of time before Cape Epic. So I don't want to dig myself in a huge hole right now. So I'm actually going to go back and do some sweet spot base work now. So not quite that same heavy, high, um, high end load. Uh, so it'll be a little bit of a mental break, but I've kind of set my baseline up now with a higher FTP so that sweet spot work will be at a higher level, you know, a higher capacity than I had before. And I'll anticipate that I'll be loading up on the fatigue a little bit. Cause I'm going to focus more on volume now than the high intensity zones. Um, still maintaining quality by making sure I'm doing structure with sweet spot and, and threshold, but more of a focus on the, the lower aerobic zones. And now I know, um, you know, thinking ahead to Cape Epic, I want to build a chronic fatigue and a chronic load, um, not to the point of overtraining, but then I know then that I can dial it back closer to the race and relieve some of the fatigue while maintaining the fitness and then do a nice taper. So that's kind of the thinking around that right now. It's almost like seems she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that seems like a very sound and logical approach. And if I was your competitor at Cape Epic, I'd say you're totally wrong and well, you need to just keep building the whole time. <laughs> I've seen this. People should listen back to what you just said. And that'd be a great quick clip because I've seen people online be like, ah, last time I went up 30 watts, this time I went up two watts. Therefore, I'm going to change all my training or maybe I just need to double my training stress. I'm going to switch to like polarized training now because all this stuff's not going to work anymore. Going keto. I just need a new, yeah, exactly. I need a new training stimulus. Maybe I should be lifting weights where Amber's like, yeah. it's not just different. You'll, you'll see with mine too. It's not just like 
five watts, five watts, five watts, five watts, five watts. And if you could do that for like a year, uh, a lot of you could be in the pro Peloton, right? Because it like, that just does not happen. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, so Brandon, uh, your Cape Epic partner, uh, he <laughs> went down 13 watts from 331 to 318. He's still over five watts per kilo at 5.1, which is really <coughs> impressive. And he has been taking time off of structure without events and everything else. And he's, it's funny. He mentioned this on the live stream. He, he said, turns out just going hard every once in a while doesn't make you fast. And, (laughs) and that's like the thing, his rides haven't felt easy. Right. And that's a big thing. A lot of the time we just associate if something felt hard, it was productive, but that's not the case. Like, right, Chad, like if, if it was just making it hard, your job would be super easy as the head coach. Like <laughs> you just, you know, make workouts feel hard and it'd be fine. Yeah. We, we wouldn't even need science. I just tell my riders to go out and flog themselves and report back and tell me it was real hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but we do that. We're really guilty of that. Us athletes a lot of the time. And, and there is a time and place for it because, and I'll, and I'll explain this in a bit, but we're guilty many times of doing uh, just, you know, going out and chasing neighborhood comms and kind of getting, falling into that rhythm, which is totally fine. Like that, it, it, Brandon mentioned that this is kind of a good necessary break for him because he's built up to where his peak is. And since he doesn't have any goal events, that's more or less what he's doing. And he's planning on resetting after this and going through kind of like you, Amber, uh, going through a whole, you know, base build specialty cycle, kind of going through that whole process. So, so that's his, uh, that you need some downtime, but the problem arises when you start to associate that with being productive training. Um, there's, there's so much that goes into like properly structured training and, and it does work. It's based on science, right? So it does make you faster. And even though both of them feel hard, it doesn't necessarily hard doesn't mean you're getting faster. So good thing to remember. The other thing about uh, Brandon to think about is that, so Brandon's at 5.12 watts per kilo at sea level. That's probably 5.35 or something like that. So he's almost one and a half watts per kilo at the moment, higher than Amber. And if Amber comes in at five watts per kilo, she should go back to be pro because you probably, <laughs> probably win a world championship. But the, uh, Brandon's, the part that's going to slow him down are skills. So he's putting so much extra time on the mountain bike and not necessarily, uh, like you said, doing real structure training, but he just needs to see so much trail and that will make him faster in the long run. Um, I've been guilty of that, of doing too much structure training and not enough like skills work in cross, crit and mountain bike. But then when you do it, like, I swear it adds like an extra half watt per kilo in, in crits alone. And then on probably a mountain bike, it's even more. If you can descend well, if you can corner well, you can have energy and then or uh, maintain energy in it. Over a 30 plus hour race that we're doing, being able to be just a little bit smoother and not have to go above threshold out of every corner at Cape Epic mm. over eight days, that's going to be crazy amount of like the amount of watts that you save there are crazy. So that's a and not just watts, right? It's like the the cognitive load that you save of not having to to really feel like you're processing a ton of information through every single turn to do it correctly. Yeah. If you can just flow and not think too much about it, it's it's going to be huge. A lot of riders There's- probably experience this on the road where like you go down a descent and you're scared or a mountain biking, like it takes something out of you and you're like, Oh, that was really hard. But then when you just like goes down stuff that isn't, you're not scared and you're fun, you almost get rejuvenated, right? With the descent. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this feels amazing. And I enjoy it. Where for us, if we're scared, um, which I think maybe Chad, me, Amber, and 
Brandon could be in the situation. I don't think Pete's going to be scared of anything. Sophia's not going to be scared of anything either. Um, but I, I personally get scared. I don't know. I don't know for you mm-hmm. guys, but fast yeah, fire road, sure. flat turn. I'm like, my, my alarm signals are going off that my front wheel is going to slip out and I'm going to crash. Uh, but if I can not see enough trail or do it enough times that that doesn't happen, the cognitive load over eight days, the recovery, the less cortisol is going to be insane. Mm-hmm. Adrenaline that just, you know, you get that shot of adrenaline and then like your body recovers from it. And then you have like this, you come down from it and you do it over and over and over again. And you start to get really, really, really tired. There's yeah. something to be said too about, so in our minds, we, di- we, we divide things into two or three scenarios in a bike race. You're either going up, you're going down, or you're going flat. And a lot of the time we compartmentalize them too much. And, and what I mean by that is there's a, um, when you have better fitness and also when you have better bike handling, there's like a ton of nuance in between that fills in those gaps between those three different circumstances you encounter in a race. And it makes it so that you are so much more fluid, able to carry more momentum and really reduce the amount of psychological stress that's going on in your mind when you're racing. And, uh, we see this and with an upcoming podcast guest, um, that we, that we want to have at some point, but, uh, you know, uh, he's definitely a fan of the podcast and listener to the podcast, but, uh, Alex wild, he's a pro mountain biker and he, uh, he has very impressive, uh, fitness, but he has mentioned many times that his, one of his biggest downsides is his descending ability, relatively speaking, cause he's a relative late comer to the sport in some ways. And you know, for him, even though he has great fitness because he doesn't have that bike handling, he ends up just utilizing so much energy to try to make up for that. And it's, you can't just change it one day to the next either. That's something that really does take time. So Brandon's being very intelligent. I think by spending a good amount of time, making sure that he is very familiar with riding and then just getting in reps, making sure that he gets as much, like you said, Nate, seeing more trail, it just makes everything a little bit easier. I'm going to Brandon listen to this. He's probably listening to it live, but I'm going to give you guys a tip. (laughs) Okay. This is not like me, Oh, but this is, this is something that Brandon needs to improve on, on his downhills where he can pedal out of a corner that he doesn't take the best. He is so light and so strong that he does that and accelerates so much. But Amber, you're going to either have to like drop, let him drop you or do that, match that same effort. And 130 something pound, 5.4 watt per kilo person accelerating out of a corner. It's hard to match that. Like he is very quick on that. And if he could just I be gravity on my side though. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> I, that's great. But it's, it's still, uh, that's it could button. be, I mean, I'm just saying if Brandon does that out of every corner for you, that could be hard, right? For you to, to you to catch yeah. up. And yeah, I, I know you're making a joke, but yeah, I'm just saying it's, it's, <laughs> no, it's all about being, you're smooth. absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And this is, this is one of those, um, kind of subtle things that you learn when you're used to working with teammates is for example, if I'm racing a crit and I have a teammate on my wheel and I I'm trying to protect her from the wind or put her in good position. Every time we go through a corner, Chances are, since I'm in front, I can take the corner a little bit faster. And it's always good to assume that the person on your wheel, if it's your teammate and you want them there, is going to have to accelerate a little bit out of that corner, maybe just a touch more than you do to stay on your wheel. So I used to always have this rule of thumb that coming out of the corner, I would just, I wouldn't really ramp up the speed. I'd give like five pedal strokes, just five pedal strokes, not soft pedaling, but just a little pause before you start to really accelerate out of the corner. And it can make all the difference in the world for your teammate, especially if your job is to actually make their lives easier. You don't want to make it harder on them out of every corner. That's a good point. Actually, Amber, you might, we'll see where you're at, but you should probably lead on the descents 
because mm-hmm. then you won't do that. And then mm-hmm. Brandon won't be able to, if he messes it up, he can pedal back. But other than that, you can kind of governor your, your uh, team. Cause it, I mean, 30, 33, 35 hours. That's a lot of riding in a week. Yes, it is. And you know, one of the other points I just want to bring up another way in which Brandon is being really smart. I think actually most of us are doing this too, but he's also keeping in mind being mentally fresh. Right. So going out and doing some unstructured stuff, working on skills, it's a huge mental break right now. And we have nine months ahead of us of training before this race. And so I think that, you know, it's nice to see where our FTPs are and the progress that we're making, but also keeping in mind that this is, um, you know, we need to settle in for the long haul here. And, you know, we have the potential to really burn ourselves out before getting to Cape Epic. And like you said, it's going to be a long week with a lot of work and a lot of cognitive load. And if you're feeling mentally burned out going into that, it's not going to be a good thing. So the last point I want to mention on this, I know we're diverging from the ramp test, but, um, (laughs) the accelerating out of every turn and doing so hard. uh, A lot of the time you do that because you feel like you're behind behind what maybe behind your potential of where you should be riding. I don't know, but what happens is you come out of turns and you're actually it's you, you do exceed a hundred percent of kind of like your ability, so to speak. So you come out of that turn and you go really, really fast. Cause you feel like you just bled a lot of speed, but it's really important when you're racing blind, which all of you will be, you won't have seen the courses when you're racing blind, you don't come out of the turns at a hundred, 105%, anything like that, you know, going really hard. And I'm not talking about percentage of FTP. I'm talking about the, the sort of pace that you should be riding at. Uh, and what I've, the reason you can go over a hundred is cause you have to use brakes, right? And if you have to use brakes like that, then chances are, you know, you're probably going a little above it. I, when I'm riding a fresh trail or when I'm riding a long trail and I'm trying to set a fast time, I make it a goal to come into turns and to come in smooth, but not pin it coming out of them. And you start to get into this rhythm where you're breaking less. You have more time to look ahead. You're not as panicked. You're not breathing as hard. And it's a, it's a much better way to do it. If you ride all of Cape Epic at a goal of being, you know, like 85% through those turns and through those blind sections that are tricky, you're going to be way faster than if you're trying to ride at a hundred, because then you end up jamming on your brakes. When you jam on your brakes, you create dust for your partner. Your partner can't see, and you're throwing bad lines for your partner. Or if you're following, then you jam on your brakes, then you've lost all your momentum. And then you do have to accelerate back up. But if you didn't jam on your brakes, if you're just going a little bit easier, you'd have smoother lines and that helps a ton. It's just a a big change. John, that was too good of advice. Tucker, could you cut that out? So Brandon can't hear it, please. Uh, Just just kidding. It's too late. You already heard it. I think that's my fastest, uh, my fastest times on longer trails like that are always like that, but it doesn't feel as fast. And that's the tricky part. Mm -hmm. It feels slower, Mm -hmm. but it is faster. So, um, it's, it's something it's smooth and fast, John. That's it. That's it. Uh, if you ain't first, you're last other pearls of wisdom from Ricky Bobby. So, uh, Chad, uh, your test and my test, actually, both of us, we both had throwaway tests, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've got mixed emotions about this. I mean, I was riding a pretty substantial wave of motivation, uh, maybe four or five days out. Everything was going well. I'd done some rides outside, both on the road and on the trail. And every time I looked down, I was impressed by my numbers. Like, ah, yep, it's uh, it's still there. I'm starting from a good place. I'm not I'm not starting from a hole that I have to dig myself out of before I can even see progress that means something to me. And then, uh, geez, the weekend just kind of tanked. There was a fair amount of emotional stress and some other worries. And I knew that uh, after Sunday's ride, I was coming into it not feeling great. 
it, it just, it was in my head already. And I was trying not to let it be because I recognize, you know, I can talk myself out of this. If I start now, I'm going to, I've got a really good chance of talking myself out of this. So it took Monday easy and thought for sure that I was going to have a decent day Tuesday, at least something representative of what I can do. And it wasn't that. And I recognized it early on enough to know that it's not just me talking myself out of this. Things were too hard. And I based that on the workouts leading into it. I felt really good on those. I had a really strong basis for comparison. And I'm talking a few weeks worth, not just a few days worth. So I knew what I could expect. And and, and yes, my training has been minimal. It has been vastly varied to, you know, to, to Amber's point. I, I'm very fresh motiv- uh, psychologically. I'm very into rejoining this particular game and focusing almost all my efforts exclusively on writing. But uh, it, it it clearly wasn't going to be a test worth pursuing. So I pulled the plug early and uh, checked a couple things, had, had a couple theories, none of which I think stand up. I think it just really boils down to I, I didn't have it that day. So considering the last couple of uh, ramp tests, I had about a 2% decrement each time. I knocked off 2% and I'm just going to set my threshold there. I don't, I don't need to redo it. I know what it feels like. I've done a sweet spot workout. I'm doing a 90 minute one today. I'll see what that feels like, but I, I feel like I'm starting in the place that I need to start at based on, I mean, seriously, uh, years, decades, even of experience. Of all the people in the world who know what this should feel like, I would say you're one of the top. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've done my fair share of sweet spot on a trainer. But that's a that huge, that's a really good point is that like, you don't need to live and die by the ramp test. And especially, I think we should segue to John, but, um, mental stress and Amber talks about this all the time. Bad stuff happens. Uh, you have a bad night's sleep and you have a, you know, you have a bad test, but you know, like, and you can do workouts. Really the, the best part is, can you do the workouts afterwards? And it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah. see. And that, and that's true. And and even directly afterwards, because right after that, I felt like I didn't even complete my ramp test. So I'm just going to hop on the bike for an hour of lazy mountain, which is mm-hmm. quite literally the easiest hour workout we have in the entire catalog. And I was watching the clock about 20 minutes in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talked myself to 30 minutes and then that was it. I was off. I was more than flat. I felt like I was blood sugar crashing and I don't get those. Uh, it, everything was off the rails. How many? So it was clear. It was. It's not my day. How many beers with brunch did you have? <laughs> Compared yeah, to normal. Yeah. See, I can't even. <laughs> of all the excuses I came up with, alcohol wasn't one of them. Okay. So I mean, I didn't even drink heavily the night before. Not that I drink heavily, but I, <laughs> I had like half a glass of wine the night before. I just wasn't feeling the the alcohol intake. So the, the most things uh, I can't trace it back to anything other than you know, the, the the few days leading into it and uh, a dead giveaway that. It was not, that was not the day for me to demonstrate one of my best performances. So, well, speaking of beer, um, a very wise friend once told me that this is an assessment, so you can't fail. (laughs) I think think there was another comment in there too. (laughs) And I'm sure there was, but I I think I actually managed to fail that one. I I, I mean, when you bail, I guess bailing is not failing. Yes. That's a term, but, uh, it's cutting your losses. I recognized early on I wasn't going to get anything out of it, nothing beneficial. So for advice for everyone else, who this does happen to people, would be mm-hmm. if you have a lot of experience and you really know, and like you know what it feels like to do 0.85 IF for an hour, 0.85 IF for two hours, and just you could just do your workouts and then self-adjust FTP. We've talked about this before. You can even self-adjust and never do a ramp test if you're very experienced. Mm-hmm. If you're new and you're not sure what these should feel like, and this can be... Um, I think a lot of people don't realize how hard they can go right Too in a lot of workouts until they start to do like a, a plan and get build progressively is 
I, I say wait a couple days, do maybe a couple openers, see if you feel better, like a Sleeping Beauty or something, and then come back and retest. Because it, you, you don't want to set yourself too low if, you don't, if you're new and you don't really know, um, if you don't have that experience. So unless you've been coaching yeah, and, and, and have then, an indoor power studio and wrote, written thousands of workouts and training plans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so drawing on that experience, I knew what to put my numbers at. And the next day, you know, I had, a, I had a, one of the most solid nights of sleep I've had in weeks and got on the bike, feeling optimistic, feeling, you know, my legs felt good. Everything went as well as I expected it to go. So it was the day that said, you know what, you're fine. Definitely start here. And, and I'm, I, could be arguably biting off more than I can chew from an outsider's perspective in that I'm jumping into sweet spot based high volume, which, you know, do as I say, not as I do sort of mentality <laughs> going here. But honestly, if, if I look at the weekly stress I've been tallying over the course, or when I, when I look at my running, my lifting, which has been highly metabolic over the last several weeks and the writing that I have woven into it. And now I'm going to focus almost exclusively on writing. I don't think it's going to be that big of a nudge up in stress. So I think in terms of overall stress, this is going to be pretty similar with, with what my body is accommodating right now. So I don't think it's unrealistic. And you, and the perk is you can always drop down to mid volume too, you know, lifting. absolutely. And, and I'm, I've got my finger on the trigger. I, I'm ready to <laughs> definitely <laughs> knock things down a bit. Uh, Chad's also has years of racing at a high level and lots mm -hmm. of stress. So it's not like he's coming from nothing to that. Um, it'll be kind of like oh. Amber, except probably not as um, an aggressive like return that Amber had, but kind of a, mm. you know, not so much cycling stress, reduce some of the other stuff. His body will, his nuclei are ready. They're like, let's get mm -hmm. big legs yeah. again. And Chad's got, this doesn't matter, but giant legs, if you've ever seen them. <laughs> giant. <laughs> do. So big. I don't know if I can say that as you're like CEO, yeah. but... <laughs> Uh, hopefully, hopefully. So can we, can, okay. we, can we uh, go to you, Jonathan? Because I want to talk about mental sure. stress. Because yeah. you, so you had the moving, you moved to a different house. You're actually staying at 6,200 feet at Lake Tahoe, which I think we're all jealous. And we're like, why don't we all live up there? Uh, right? Let's <laughs> yeah. just move the Not moving there long term. Uh, but we had a month like where we had to bridge basically between when we sold our new house and got the new house. So uh, we're up there for a month. Really happy and grateful. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's really great. But the elevation absolutely is something that, and if you look at it, should probably be affecting me about at peak time, so to speak, right now, uh, which is kind of getting around to when you're dealing with like the, the, what is it, five days up to two weeks. That's kind of like the period where you can, you're usually going to have some sort of decrement where you actually recognize it in your performance, something like that. So perhaps that was really there, but this is a good example. Um, so I had a test where I was, executing the live stream at the same time and everything just like did not work what literally one minute before. Um, so it was like, Oh gosh, panic. And then I had to kind of fix it. And obviously I didn't get it all the way fixed. And this is really akin to a lot of us that have, man, maybe it's uh, something at work and something at work is going awry, but you have your scheduled workout and everyone's messaging you and being like, Hey, like this needs to be fixed. This needs to be fixed. And you just can't pull your head out of that head or out of that space and just place it directly into the workout space. Maybe it's kids running around like crazy. Maybe it's a totally different training environment, something like that. And it's really tough to be able to do that. Cause one thing that I don't know if we, we probably should talk about a bit more with the ramp test is it's very mentally hard to, to extract everything out of yourself for a test. Mm -hmm. like that, um, there's the physical side of it, but then there's the mental side of it too. And you, you have to be prepared at that. And that's really, 
I think one of the biggest things, especially with the ramp test, since pacing isn't, isn't part of the equation like it is with any sort of steady state test, I think this is what you get good at with testing, like how you get better at it is learning to, to rise to that occasion and learning to be able to fully empty the tank. And that takes a lot of mental energy. And if you're distracted for one reason or another, it can be really tough to do it. So kind of like what Chad said, you know, with every pedal stroke, instead of thinking about what I was doing, all I was thinking about was like, it's not working. Everything's breaking. Everything's falling apart. It's every workout, not just the ramp test. I, uh, I have, so I, this used to get me all the time. And in my email, I have, okay, they're not listening, but there's certain people who I am not fans (laughs) of who, uh, will email me stuff, not any users or anything like that. And I have it filtered to a separate email box. So it never even it used to affect me at night just going to sleep because it would go to my watch and I'd see it. So mm. I'm, I believe uh, there's like this idea of like going towards the pain and, and built to, I think in built to last, they talk about like the best leaders, you have to confront all the negative stuff too. But the last thing I want to do, so I look at all the negative stuff all the time, but I don't want to look at that right before a ramp test. And I've done it before, <laughs> right? Uh, like you read a bug report and you're like, oh, I, we should have done this differently. And you think about that and you get into the workout and the workout just got 10 watts harder just mm-hmm. because you read something right before, which is yeah. no fun. The opposite, you listen to one of those podcasts, you watch Justin Rossi, The Chase on ours, yeah. Yeah. and then you just gained, like it just went down 10 watts, right? The motivation completely <laughs> flips and it just yep. goes to show how much of it is mental with what we do with the perceived effort. And like your both Chad and your physiologies did not change as much as your ramp test showed, right? You yeah. didn't suddenly lose like 60 watts or whatever you guys did. Uh, yeah. Not overnight, all. like from like two days before. And then the next day you were fine again. Uh, yeah. It's I did like, I, yet, like yesterday, I knocked out one of the, like, it's, it's one of the harder workouts in the catalog, catalog Zalibu plus four, right? And was able to knock that one out. At uh, elevation. At elevation. So it, this is a really good Im- really good point. If you have a test where you feel like that test just doesn't represent what I feel like is reality. Um, sure. There's the side of us that always like is the critic inside, like the self-critic that's like, sure. You always say your power meter doesn't read right. But at the same time, (laughs) don't discredit yourself. You probably know yourself pretty well. So if you have a situation like that, where you don't feel like it's representative, remember that this is, this is a benchmark assessment that gives you a suggestion and you can go back and you can do it on a fresher day. And if you had a bad day, it's, it's okay to have a bad day. All of us do have bad days and a bad day may be a normal day otherwise, but for testing, it can be a bad day, right? So it's just important to remember that. I think I might watch the chase a little bit. And if you haven't seen the chase, it's our most popular video. It's got like over a million views. Watch that. That is the most motivating video I think in cycling. And I know we made it, but personally, but another thing too, at work, if you can like you can wrap something up before your workout. Oh, oh my God. And it's like, good. You're like, blah, 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 commit. And it's awesome. And it goes yes. and all the green lights go up and you're like, I did something today. And then you're like, now yes. I got free time to go do a workout. That is also like, puts you in the right heads place. You're ready to go fire. Um, it's awesome. And then even better, if you can then do a group workout where you join people and then they're pumped too. And you get in, you're like, Hey, you know, I haven't seen you. This is fun. Uh, that is also another level of stoke that you get um, that just reduces the RPE. It's, it makes everything totally. easier, which I like. That makes, you can be long-term. When we talk about, um, Amber talks about long-term fatigue and stuff. It's less, I think, TSS and more mental. Because if your whole life is organized in a way that 
you're having this positive feedback and you're not getting you know, discouraged and you don't have all this life stress, the same TSS will feel a lot easier than the opposite. You, know, you have a really hard life, you got all the COVID stuff, you're, you're taking care of kids. Um, but if you can maintain, and that makes it really hard to then stay on the boat, both with nutrition and with training. But if you're on the other side and it's all easy, it's not that big of a deal. And they all interrelate and stuff. But I think we probably, I know I don't focus on the mental side enough to get a benefit for the, uh, for the fitness side. Totally. You think sometimes people think, oh, if my fitness goes up, I'll be happy. Really, if you're happy, your fitness will go up. Yeah, yeah. They, you, you can't separate the two. They're linked. You know, we're a complex, we're a complex thing, us, us humans. Uh, so Pete went up 18 watts from 349 to 367, and he's up to 4.24 watts per kilogram. Now, he, he went down quite a lot on the previous test because he was really sick for quite a while and then, you know, started coming back from that. But also, it's worth saying that he had a really hard crash, like a hard enough crash on his mountain bike that it broke his full face helmet, um, like broke the front of it. And he's really banged up and sore, um, even though he said that he wants to go ride the trail on Saturday morning again. So, um, but he's, he's, you know, really banged up. So he may have even done better than that. So kudos, Pete. He's was, pretty uh, close. Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So I mean, he was three fifty five before, just so everyone knows, or three fifty six or something. What was he? Yeah, or three sixty. So he got like a before being sick. So I'd say like a ten watt boost in eight weeks, which is yep. that's good, especially at Pete's level. Yes, very good. And he he was close to you, but Nate, you had an awesome. You you've put in a lot of work. You've had a broken <laughs> rib, um, and you took time bit. off for that. And, but you still ended up, I'll let you say what yeah. the results oh, yeah. were, but super so impressive. I want to talk about linear, linear progression. Cause what Amber said, and if you look at like last year when I was winning those bike races and I upgraded to cat two, I was a three thirty FTP and I was racing so much. I kind of stayed around there. I hit three forty for a little bit in the summer. And then I went down to three twenty in September. Then I went from three twenty to three twenty three. And then I went from three twenty three to three thirty eight. Um, 338 to 342. And then I like got 352. And that was my peak of all time. And that's when I really upped my training volume. And I was going so well. And then kind of the week before I, I, I think I overtrained. I like doubled my no 50% increase in time. And I was doing it was a lot. Then I went back down to 343. Right. And then mm-hmm. that during that month, it was very hard even to do 343. This is, yeah, this is different than you guys. I did have a, a drop, but it wasn't like mental. It was actually, I was physically taxed. My heart rate was hard and loud. Um, I don't know if that's a, a hard heart rate, but it was my resting heart rate was like 80 when it was usually like in the forties and mm. um, everything just felt weird to me. Took me like a month. I had a recovery week, almost the last day of the recovery week. I broke my rib mountain biking. It's like, <laughs> ah, I took 10 more days off um, and then I came back to it. First workout was very hard and then things started to feel easier and I actually felt fresh and my legs stopped to hurt, which was cool. And I got two weeks of uh, sustained, no, high volume century, which I really like that plan for, for me doing like over-unders. That's what I really uh, respond well to. So the ramp test, super motivated because I missed last ramp test and Amber uh, made me scared. So I, got, I went from 343 to 371, which that's a big increase for me and that's a high. And I always like to say sea level because um, it makes it sound higher. This is giving myself a generous 5%. This is based off some tables. I could really test it and make sure it really is there. But that puts me at like 390. So 
if I was at 371, I want to race a crit so bad. And I've also lost weight. Um, I stopped taking creatine and I lost some body fat in this process too. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about it later on in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is a huge swing for me. I'm pretty pumped. Over the next four weeks, I just want to like grow into the FTP. There's messages or a mix of congrats to now you should do XYZ workout to prove it. Um, it's like a... <laughs> Like people want to see me just fail. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. The, all the Amber fans, which is everyone. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but the idea that I'm going to build through this FTP and like get harder and harder workouts over the next four weeks. And I did one yesterday. It was a hard workout, um, but I did it. So I don't know. It seems reasonable. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Way to go, Nate. Thank you. Impressive stuff. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking to the Amber yeah, but, fans thing. But, but let's not. Sorry, go ahead. Let's not miss what, I mean, just the key point here is that this is a situation that is not infrequent at all. I mean, this shows us what our capability of, what our capabilities are of running ourselves completely ragged and then sitting on that, just staying there. And I, I swear we can do that indefinitely. You talk about your performance basically rose to 340 and then it didn't go past that, even though you were racing a ton, you were training a ton, but it just hovered right there. That that right there is giveaway number one, something's up. And then you described how awful you felt, giveaway number two, and, and for a long period of time. And then you get hurt and you're training way less than you used to train and you get this big uptick in capabilities, which says, I mean, you were so overreached. This is, yeah. I'm not saying you needed a broken rib, but you needed something that would keep you off the bike for a couple weeks. Yeah. And, and look what happened. I mean, this is a tremendous rebound. It's super inspiring. I, yeah. I'm going to break another rib before Cape Epic. Maybe two. <laughs> I think you should. Oh. Don't do that. Dude, you'll like this. Not the take-home message. The other two things that are a little bit different, and it's probably not related, but the last time I got a big bump to 355, it was beers with Chad on a Friday. This time, I got so wasted on a Friday before and threw up a ton like so much where I, I threw up in the toilet, thought I could go, I fell asleep on the floor, thought I could go back to bed and I threw up on the sink on the way back to bed. Uh, and then I got 371. So maybe so, there's so something absolutely. in your physiology where your body's like yep. a super compensation. Of uh, course. You're, you're reinforcing my hypothesis. So we're going to talk about this. Four yeah, days. I, That's Chad's been key. Chad's been training in that way for quite some time now. So yeah, I'm joking. Got, I've been accumulating data for years. <laughs> Let's compare data for for science for the for the cause of science. Yeah, uh, all for science. Speaking to the Amber thing, really quick uh, to the two gals that I saw on the trail last night uh, that were podcast listeners. Awesome, good to see you all. Sorry, I didn't. I was like hypoxic descending after a hard set of intervals. But they said, hey, Coach Jonathan, it's Amber here. That's all they said. That was the first thing, like in the same breath. It's like they're looking around you. <laughs> That's what my kids say. <laughs> yeah, hey, where's Amber? <laughs> yeah, 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 straight up. Okay, let's get into Phil's question. <clears throat> so he says, um, which basically he's, he's kind of getting into like a, a why TSS doesn't increase linearly uh, with this one. Actually, I, I'm having trouble finding his question in here. I think that it may have shifted on us. I can read it if you want. I'm, I'm looking yeah, right at it. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Chad. Okay, so from Phil, is it necessary that we increase our TSS week over week or are things like IF, which is intensity factor, more important at times rather than just riding longer to increase TSS? Awesome. Thank you, Chad. Uh, imagine that a refresh fixed it for me. So 
<laughs> we're all good. Uh, so yeah, that's like a super good question, right? Like, like it's kind of like mm-hmm. what we were talking about before, like with uh, ramp test, why doesn't it just keep going up and also TSS? And we get this question in a couple different ways. A person w- like asking what they can do. So can I just keep increasing? But then also when they're following one of our plans and they say, Hey, last week, my TSS was here this week. It's not as high or this phase to this phase. It's not as high. Why is that? Yeah. So let's start with, I mean, be it known that not all TSS is created equal. We've, we've beaten that point to death. So I want to cover or convey some different information on, on a similar, well, the same topic. So TSS training stress score for anyone who doesn't know what that stands for is it's a valuable metric. I'm not going to deny that, but like all metrics, it has its pros, it has its cons, its limitations. And there's no metric that is the be all end all measure. We can't have a single sole metric that, that tells us everything we need to know. So it's always in combination with something else. In the case of TSS, I find it especially useful when your training is very much homogeneous. And, and, and in this context, you could almost use kilojoules or kilocalories because they, they trend the same way. I mean, we're just, it's, it's this very straightforward measure. An example of that would be sweet spot training where, you know, week one, you're at 300 TSS. Week two, you go to 320. Week three to 345, you maintain this, this tidy little ramp rate, and then you recover for a week and, you know, fitness trends upward. But that, that, that's looking at it too simplistically, because if we looked at the composition of even one of those workouts, say a four by 10 threshold workout or sweet, or sweet spot, four by 10 sweet spot workout, that's a very manageable format for someone who has any level of fitness, even people who are just starting out, that's a pretty manageable format. But if you took those same 10 minute intervals, all four of them and blocked them together into a single 40 minute interval, it would become a very different workout right out of the gates. I mean, even people who are highly fit, ask them to do 40 straight minutes of sweet spot. And that is a taxing workout. Mm-hmm. That same structure left in the form of 10 minute intervals it is a very different workout if you have five minute recoveries between those intervals, or if you shave it all the way down to 30 second intervals or 30 second recovery intervals. So same deal. So many, I mean, it's so many more happy half ways. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, the, 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 the psychological, the mental, and even the physiologic stress that it inflicts on you over the course of, you know, jamming this stuff all together versus spacing it out and giving you a bit of a, both a physical and a mental refresh in between each one carries weight that TSS cannot account for. But too, Chad, the big point in this is over an hour, that's the same TSS. People don't realize yeah, that. Oh, that's four by yes, 10. And that's, that's the overall point one by four. I'm driving at it. You'll have, you'll have exactly the same TSS and because we can pad the workout in other ways to make those long recoveries, you know, put them on the, the beginning of their end or the end, pack them all into the same hour, same exact TSS very different physiologic mental tool. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to something like aerobic endurance, you may think, well, this is about as homogeneous as it gets. I can do work (laughs) at 60% of FTP and I can, I can go for long, long rides. I mean, now I'm looking at 500 TSS and then next week I'm going to go to 550 next week, 600, then I'll hit my recovery week. But even then, if you say, you know, have, have a block of time, you've got four days off, you're going to do a camp you say, I've got a lot of time. I want to do long rides. I've got the routes all worked out. So I'm going to do a bunch of five hour rides, four or five hour rides. The stress you're going to feel on ride one versus ride four are, is incomparable. So, so, and again, the TSS is identical. You could do the same route every day at the same intensity level, change not a thing. And that fourth ride is going to be a heck of a lot harder than that first ride. Again, that's something TSS cannot account for. 
And then to really drive this home, let, let's look at what happens after you do a ramp test. You, you in the case of Nate, goes from 340 to 370-ish, right? 71. So a new FTP, <laughs> I, know, I, knew, I knew you would say that too. So, <laughs> that's why I said 370, I was just taunting you. Um, so you could literally do the same training plan, the same workouts, but you, what, what's happening? You're yielding a higher, higher kilojoule output, higher kilocalories, higher watts, and you're expressing greater cap capabilities, but you're getting the same TSS. Okay. So even in that case, you know, th there's no change in your TSS, yet your performance capabilities have risen. So it, it gets even more complex when we look at when the writing is less less homogeneous and it's more mixed. Um, it, it, TSS becomes an even less reliable sole metric. And again, you know, we're, we're looking at it as if, if it were the only thing that mattered. So just just consider the difference in stress between a sweet spot base plan and a specialty plan if you're a trainer road subscriber tss declines in in specialty weeks one through four and that's because the intensity is jacked way up right so your performance capabilities are actually greater even though the tss is lower you know relative to or compared to base and build and then tss declines even further in the five through uh, weeks five through eight because now you're tapering and sharpening mm -hmm. Your performance capabilities rise even higher because you know you're shedding fatigue. You're you're allowing yourself to express the fitness that's there, but it's buried under this layer or layers of fatigue. So through the phases, things like intensity factor and duration and your rating of perceived exertion and, and a number of other things all start to matter more and more due to specificity. Because we're getting, you know, we're we're trying to as closely emulate the demands of what you're gonna face when it really matters. But even then, you have to remind yourself that metrics are tools, and, and TSS is one such tool, and it's a tool that's really good at helping us quantify stress. But again, it, that's all it does, and, and it doesn't even do that in all contexts. I mean, sometimes simply growing stress is all that we need to get faster. Sometimes it is actually that simple, but even in that case, and in all cases, the real aim is to grow specific capabilities improve our performance capabilities. See to it that on the day you're capable, you know, regardless of what happens on the day, the capabilities are there. And if you can figure out how to apply them, they're, they're, they're ready and waiting. And, and to restate that the real aim is to progress through relevant energy systems. I mean, we're trying to achieve physiologic change here. We're trying, this leads to specific and contextually ideal performance enhancements. You're now better at the very thing you need to be better at. And again, TSS, can't, uh, TSS alone, I should say, can't capture that. It can't get you there. So, so really what, what the takeaway is, is that TSS on its own, it can't, it can't account for all the things that we can improve. Again, it's simply a measure of stress and adaptation is the objective, but performance improvement is the goal. So we need to measure our progress by moving through basically tougher versions of workouts that tax particular relevant energy systems. It's that simple. Yeah, this is, I feel like the, the, there's a temptation that all of us feel to try to oversimplify our training and TSS is a really easy way to do that. And, in, in and I'm saying psychologically, right? Because it just seems like this is the overall summary of what I've done. So I'll just live by that summary, but uh, there, there is nuance in there. And if we do that, we definitely have risk it's, it's there. So if you recognize yourself having this sort of temptation, uh, it doesn't, training doesn't have to be complex, you know, looking deeper than just overall TSS isn't necessarily complex. It's pretty simple. Um, especially if you're, you know, if, uh, this is why writing plans and writing training plans that are productive and everything else is so hard. Like it takes a lot 
So if you have a plan that's in place that you're following that you can rely on, then it, it really does like help so much. It, it, it helps take a lot of this, I guess, uh, the extra mental stress that you may be having just from trying to figure it all out and removes it. So, <laughs> and, and this also comes with a big caveat where we see a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of folks, you know, they'll, they'll talk about, Hey, can I sub the weekend workout for, you know, uh, this outdoor ride? And you totally can. Absolutely. Um, just remember the other discussions that we've talked about already about structure versus non-structure and, and the benefits that you'll get. But assimilating, especially anything that's like a non-structured ride, if you're mountain biking or if you're doing a group ride, stuff that tends to be a bit spiky and hard in those efforts, uh, don't just look at TSS to try to say, oh, okay, well, that ride was the same TSS as what I would have done when I was doing that, you know, tempo workout that was going to be two hours long. Uh, just know that chances are your body is not going to have taken on the same strain. And as a result, it's going to need a bit more rest or some sort of change uh, moving forward. Uh, otherwise you can put yourself in a hole pretty easily. I'm going to say that another yeah, I think. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Nate. Sorry. Uh, I'll go quick. The, uh, maybe I won't. This is, we've all experienced this where we're in like sweet spot base or something. When you have like a progression of long sweet spot intervals, then you miss one or two outside rides and you go from 12 minutes to a 30 minute and you try to do that 30 minute and you're like, but I was yeah. doing more TSS. This should be easier. And you're like, oh no, mm -hmm. I need to jump. I need to drop back and go 10 to 12 to 15 to 20 to 30. And then it's not so hard, actually. But if you skip it, uh, even to what, like to what John said, it is darn near impossible. And it's, you know, I like to think of it as like weight training, where you, you're like, yeah, but I, I, I moved my couch all day, so I probably did gain strength because <laughs> it was hard. Uh, where really, if you add that like two and a half pounds per, per week or something, it, there's more likely an easier progression than to lift some weight, move a bunch of couches, and then be like, I'm just going to add 20 pounds. And then you get crushed by it. <laughs> Um, and that, that can happen. So Amber? that is a super good example. And it seems ludicrous to think like that a person following a structured gym routine where they're like building up based off of a one rep max and like going through that whole process to like, I feel like none of them would be like, yeah, well, I'm just going to go lift couches for the day and it'll be the same thing. <laughs> like they wouldn't think that, but us cyclists are terrible at that. We're like, I'm just going to go do this and it'll be the same, yeah. you know, uh, but because they get tired, right? You're like, oh, but yeah. I got really tired mm -hmm. and I was so sore from it. So therefore I must be getting uh, an increase in the specificity of holding this wattage for a longer time. And you aren't right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I just wanted to just touch on, I think, uh, as a tool, one of the things that TSS is really good for <clears throat> is making sure that you're not ramping up too quickly. Hmm. I think that that's a really good way of using it and not, it's not necessarily a metric of your fitness or like Chad was saying, it's not necessarily a metric of your capacity. So if you, if your goal is to continue to increase your fitness and your performance, it doesn't mean that you need to continue increasing TSS. We've made that point pretty clear, I think, but I think a good way to use this tool is to make sure that your ramp, like let's say from week to week, and this is the way our plans are structured, that you're going to have a gradual increase and not jack yourself up too quickly and we've talked before, you know, increasing too quickly and unsustainably can lead to overreaching, overtraining. But it also, even if you don't go that far, the fitness that you gain from that is what Chad likes to call brittle fitness, right? It's not necessarily going to last long or be sustainable. So I think that the a really, really good way to use TSS where it is actually a really useful tool is looking at how you're ramping up your, your total training load from week to week. That's a great point. A uh, really good point, Amber. It's like a speed limit, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's get into Scott's question. 
He says, I've been hearing a lot of, and he says in, in quotes here, bro science, as it relates to nutrition on the bike lately. I've been hearing it a long time, not just lately. I think all of us have, right? <laughs> uh, because bro science has always existed and always will. Um, you got to okay. confuse the body. Yeah, we should probably clarify bro science because I'm thinking of people that may, you know, English may not be their first language, so it may be a strange sort of thing here. But Conventional uh, wisdom, usually in the gym that has passed down that does not have a basis in actual science, but sounds reasonable. Yes. That's bro science. That was very nice. Uh, thank you, Webster. That was very impressive. Um, yeah. Do you have that written down? No. Yeah. So, like taped on your monitors? Nate's like, I just know it because I say it. I fight my Nate's life against it. bro science. <laughs> That's it. Yep. Okay. So uh, Scott says uh, he's been hearing a lot of bro science in, in the bike space lately. And he says specifically when it comes to using gels early on longer rides. The bro science says you are doomed if you take gels too early as it spikes the sugar in the blood and it's not possible to then sustain this for the duration of the ride. It doesn't make sense to me that taking a gel early would then cut other energy sources off for the remainder of the ride. I get that the gel's energy will be broken down and utilized more quickly. Can you help sort this out? <laughs> so we, uh, we're going to dive deep, I think, on this one, right, Chad? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Scott, you've already got it worked out. Um, I, I highlighted your comments. It's not possible then to sustain this for the duration of the ride. Well, it, it clearly is. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make sense to me that taking a gel early would then cut other energy sources off for the remainder of the ride. Well, it doesn't make sense to you because it doesn't make sense at all. So I think <laughs> next time you're confronted <laughs> with bro science, I, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to do the world a favor and ask this person where, where, is, where he, she, where, where they are getting their information. Because that could probably Baseball. save you from, from you know, yeah, yeah. Suffering this ride thinking you're doing it all wrong because mm -hmm. you're not and they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and, and maybe they do. Maybe there's some new emerging science, in which case you can share that with us and it can steer the rest of this conversation. But the, the short answer, <clears throat> Scott, is that you don't have to keep your blood sugar elevated. Uh, a gel is definitely going to raise your blood sugar, but it's either going to be utilized or it's going to be stored. And this will largely come down to intensity. Um, it will not lock you into needing to perpetuate that high blood sugar for the rest of your long ride. That's not how the body works. Um, hypothetically, I suppose you could do an evening depletion ride and then you could sleep low. You know, you don't re-ingest carbohydrate during dinner. You get up, you know, maybe have your black coffee and then you go out and ride hard. That would be a situation where, yep, if you took, you would need that first gel and you would probably need to stay on top of those gels because you've run your liver dry, you've run your muscles dry and you need, you need something to be able to do work. But even in that case, if you go slow over a long ride, which long rides typically are slow, you might not even need the gels then. But uh, so, so back on track, you, you have other sugar stores. I mean, first off, you've got your liver and typically that's depleted at the end of an overnight fast, or at least it's low. Um, you can deplete your muscles in an overnight workout, but most, in most cases, if you did a, a, a workout the previous night, you probably ate carbohydrate with dinner and, and you're back on track. And then you probably ate breakfast. So you're coming into this probably, maybe not loaded to the gills, but definitely loaded to the point where a gel's not gonna be a make or break sort of situation. And then on top of it, fat is going to predominantly fuel the work at any lower intensities. So, so even if you do take a gel and, and, and it's an easy ride, once that gel has been utilized or packed away, you're gonna go back to metabolizing fat. So yes, carbohydrate ingestion will diminish fat's contribution and, and it, it only does so temporarily and it only does so to degrees. And again, this is intensity dependent because rides like a long, slow distance don't require much or any exogenous or eaten carbohydrate 
heavy efforts do. It's really mm-hmm. quite that simple. And I know I made the mistake of saying that lipolis or uh, glycogen ingestion or glucose ingestion, you know, having having a bit of carbohydrate shuts off lipolysis. And I definitely should not have used language that strong. I'm not sure lipolysis ever shuts off entirely. It's always running to some degree, um, but it does affect it does affect it. So, so glucose in the system will affect lipolysis and it will, and lipolysis is just the breakdown of, of fatty acids so that you can use the fat for fuel. It will affect that and, and it'll impact it negatively in, in whatever term. I mean, if it's just a gel, it's not going to be that long. So to, th- that's the, <laughs> that's the short answer. So <laughs> the long answer is, is not necessarily just an answer to that, but it's a lot of information that that I've already known. And then a lot that I looked into over the course of researching this uh, various aspects of this, because man, uh, during the planning meeting, we had so many questions and so many offshoots of this. Seriously, we could make an entire podcast out of this question alone. Um, so I tried to dial it back, figure out a couple things that I think if you have a better understanding of it, these won't be questions where you're baffled over the course of that ride. You might be able to start to formulate your own conclusions and make sense of something, some idiocy that someone put forth. <laughs> no, no offense to whoever this writer is. I'm not trying Everybody to be cruel. Everybody on the group ride is an expert. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's sadly true. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's let's look at some science. Um, the hormonal model of energy regulation. So when we talk about uh, body composition or weight loss, we often put it either in terms of the caloric model or the hormonal model. And as, as anybody who's done any research on these matters knows, there's a ton of overlap between those two and you can't extricate one from the other. Insulin, this is, this is a, a buzzy term and it's a very important hormone. And, and in this context, we're, we're just going to look at one aspect of what insulin does. It's, it is an energy storage, sorry, energy storage hormone. Basically, it seeks to maintain normal blood glucose levels. It directs nutrients into storage depots, and thus it's an anabolic hormone. So it's pushing liver or it's pushing, uh, uh, it's helping the liver create glycogen and store it. It's helping the muscle to create glycogen and store it. Either way, it pushes it in there so that that glycogen can be created. So it is a storage hormone. And it does, in fact, impair uh, lipolysis, so the breakdown of of fatty acids, um, in particular white adipose tissue, so our body fat. Um, And the thing is, is the incoming food actually signals energy balance or energy abundance, sorry. And this suppresses that fat breakdown that I was just talking about, and it actually promotes fat storage. So it is true to a degree, but it's not a, it's not an on off switch. It's never binary. On the other side of that, on the other side of the hormonal model, there's leptin, and this is the satiety hormone. So the, the I'm full hormone, the satiation hormone, and it tells the central nervous system to decrease food intake. And it's stored in our fat. So the logic is, and the way it works is the more fat you have, the more surplus that exists, the stronger the message that the body is, is satiated and, and we don't need any more nutrients taking in, uh, taking in. And this is, this is how it should work. And unfortunately we can <clears throat> make ourselves insensitive to both the effects of insulin and the, uh, the effects of leptin. Uh, there was a review back in 2007 by Duncan that talked about this this relationship between leptin and insulin. And in this case, leptin actually impairs one form of insulin's ability to, to prevent this fat breakdown, which is counter to what you would think, and, and it, which I found particularly interesting because the takeaway here is that this satiety hormone can actually prevent insulin from preventing fat metabolism. 
if that makes sense. It can actually make it work counter to what we expect it to do. Wow. And, and really, this is just evidence that some level of fat breakdown can occur even in the presence of insulin. And there's actually more evidence of that that I'll talk about later. So the, the other question, maybe in the case of the gel, is that how long is my blood sugar or my insulin level going to stay elevated? And based on what I read, based on my understanding at this point in time, it seems like the insulin in the bloodstream basically lasts the duration of that elevated blood sugar, of that hyperglycemia. It also extends past it a little bit. So it's not like as soon as the blood sugar is cleared, the insulin goes down. There's still insulin in the bloodstream post reestablishment of your normal blood sugar, and it hangs on for a little while, which means the effects of insulin will also hang in there for a little while. So when problem you say, is, so the, I just really want to, I want to clarify really quick. So when your blood sugar is high, that means there's the carbohydrate that you've ingested. It's now in the bloodstream and then mm -hmm. insulin is helping pull it out of the bloodstream and into tissues. Exactly. So it, yeah, just, I just want to clarify that. Awesome. Cool. Yep. Thanks. And feel free to interject anytime. Cause there's a lot of info here and I don't really want to run this entire show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, the, the bummer of this is, is it's all subjective, just like anything else. Um, it, it can be subjective on, on a lot of bases. This one of which is that it's relative to the incoming dose of the carbohydrate, um, and your carbohydrate sen sensitivity and kind of along that, along those lines, there's an article, I guess it's a paper is an opinion piece put forth by Phil Maffetone, who's both a clinician and a, an endurance coach written a couple books. Um, he has a very particular philosophy and then Paul Lorson at, uh, Jesus at Sprints, which is the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand, in Auckland. And he, he is a applied sports scientist and a physiologist and, and one of the foremost experts on high-intensity interval training. He and Martin Buchheit are really, those, those, two, those two guys alone could teach you pretty much everything you need to know when it comes to high-intensity intervals. Um, and in this article in particular, I almost recommend reading it because first off, it's extremely short, but it's also a really good synopsis on, on how to recognize overtraining and how to further your recovery or, or maximize your recovery. So for that reason alone, I think it's worth worthwhile. But, you know, one of the takeaways conveyed is that high quality training and adaptation require a high quality diet. And it's really that simple. So you need healthy and natural carbohydrate. You need fat in place of these highly refined, high glycemic car carbohydrates, which do, you know, don't get me wrong, do have their place. But in terms of your overall diet scheme, not so much. And their stance is that insulin and leptin insensitivity due to the poor diets that we practice that we feel like we can get away with uh, affect us and, and make, even though we're seemingly, and we are fit, we're not, we're not healthy. Hmm. So the idea here is that this, this only applies off the bike, but it also applies on the bike when you're working at low intensity. Hmm. So you can actually kind of set the stage for metabolic disorder by going out and riding at 50 or 60% of threshold for hours on end and slamming gels the whole time. So there's, I mean, this, there's, there's probably a person that's popping into everybody's mind that they know that's like, that guy just eats donuts from the gas station every day and he's still really fast. Yeah. Brandon. Yeah. I... Yeah. I, and I saw it a lot in my indoor bike classes. I mean, these are hour long workouts and yes, they were high intensity workouts, but people were coming into this at the end of the day, they'd had breakfast and lunch and probably a snack in the afternoon. And now they've got their Gatorade bottle and their gel to get through this hour long workout. And they wonder why they're still overweight. Mm. I mean, it's, and, and I could only feel sympathy for them and try to educate them. But at the time I didn't have much better an understanding than they did. And um, a lot of the time it doesn't catch up to you. Like, right. It's not like, um, uh, 
this is something that certain people you can probably get away with for a certain amount of time. But also when you talk about it, like you said, the high performance, high performance needs a high, high quality diet. And who's to say that they could not be better than what they currently are, right? That's the hard thing. You just don't know. Yeah. And, and the trick with anything related to metabolic disorders, it's just such a slow time course. I mean, you can get away with making by blow with blowing it for literally years on end and not suffer the consequences of it till well years later. So it's not something that, that shows you, you're getting it wrong in, in the short term. So I just, I have a quick question. So I know that I feel better when I'm eating while I'm riding and I'm taking on carbohydrate at regular intervals during my workout. So at what point does that become too much? Cause like if I'm doing a long endurance ride, like I'm still going to be eating a lot of carbohydrate and I know I'm going to feel a lot better on that ride if I'm eating consistently and taking carbohydrate. So what, at what point does it become detrimental? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, good question, Nate. And, and, and I call you Nate because you're, you're beating me to the punch. I'm actually going to address this very thing. It is a good okay. question and it's, it's the question, right? Um, so the last name is Pierce. let me get there. That's tricky. Pierce Pearson. Pierce, Pierce, a chat joke there. It's good. It's solid. Okay. So, so let me, let, let's, all, let's discuss further just a little bit more about hormones. Um, a particular study, 2019. So pretty recent, it was a mini review of about 190 research articles, Dylan Thomas, um, all, all these studies are linked and I know Tucker is going to provide those, but it, they point out something that, that we didn't need a study to tell us. We knew this already is that hormones are pulsatile. It means they're not sustained. And, and this applies to everything. I mean, insulin, leptin, glucagon, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, testosterone, growth hormone, you name it. They're not meant to be constantly in circulation. They work on typically circadian rhythms, but there are a lot of other things that can influence them. You know, in the case of insulin and glucagon, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, energy supply. So anytime we, we lose this, this pulsatility and we, we incur issues, it just happens. And in the case of insulin secretion, that's this, this loss of the, the pulsatile secretion that the way it should work is an early feature of type two diabetes. And this applies to endurance athletes too, sadly. Now, it, a little bit of a side note here is a, is a term that I wasn't familiar with up until a couple of days ago called glucose effectiveness. Basically when insulin function is normal or healthy, glucose can stimulate its own uptake and its own suppression to a particular degree, its own production. Wow. So yeah, and, and, and they cited in, in one of the papers that approximately half of our overall glucose disposal, no insulin required. And we're not even talking about the, the exercise mediated non-insulin dependent glucose uptake. This is like so glucose sedentary, actually, healthy people. It actually acts like its own hormone. Basically, yes. In, in, That's in, so in cool. This case. Yeah, in, in this this particular phenomenon, and then when you combine that with insulin secretion and insulin action, both of which, when they decline, lead to type two diabetes. These three physiological phenomena actually determine our glucose tolerance. And to your <laughs> point, Amber, this 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 particular tolerance is is wide ranging. So. It's calling a subjective seems lazy, but it, it changes based on a lot of different factors. And we've also recognized that it, that it can be trained. This is something we can affect. So the, the point here is that even a gel might not have the same effect across ostensibly similar riders. I mean, there could be nothing different. So many things can compare, yet the way that rider processes glucose from a single 100, 100 calorie, 25 gram gel could be vastly different. 
So then when we talk about <clears throat> the case of our fasting insulin levels, um, this, th this too sheds light on just how complex this whole balance is. Because in this case, in the case of the insulin that's in your bloodstream, not postprandial, not after you've eaten, just, just, you know, when you're basically out of the bed in the morning or in between meals, secretion sensitivity, this glucose effectiveness I just talked about and insulin clearance are all things that affect that balance, that ever changing balance. And it, what makes this even more difficult is that they all can and do vary along so many different lines, racial and ethnic lines, age differences, activity levels, dietary composition, and the intake of your diet over, over the course of a day. And, and so the same dietary interventions can yield very differing effects. And, and then when you put certain levels of metabolic disorder on top of all that, even more different effects. So the point here is simply that there are no simple answers ever. I mean, I can't, Unfortunately, I can't tidy this up and make it concise for you, Scott. <laughs> okay, but now, now let's talk about athletes because this up until now we're basically just been talking physiology. But when we look at the blood glucose in healthy athletes, endurance athletes are a special subset of people. We're actually a really special subset of athletes in general. We have so many things going <laughs> for us, assuming we've been, been doing it right. Nate, Nate sorry, <laughs> sorry for the off chat. Nate was very, very that's smiling just, and happy right there. Chad just said that's special, true. which yes, that's a big compliment. You are to special. Chad. He's Nate. never said that so to me before. <laughs> Usually well, rolls his eyes. To be fair, that's as, that's as much acknowledgement as I get. Specifically at you, but <laughs> but you know you can, you can take that. Okay, so. So back to endurance athletes and, and how special we all are. <laughs> greater aerobic capacity, right? We've got more mitochondria. We've got um, greater capillarization. We've got greater aerobic enzymes, et cetera, et cetera, all of which leads to a greater oxidative capacity, okay? We have bigger, and in some cases, much bigger glycogen storage capacities. We have higher insulin sensitivity. And uh, Alex Hutchinson pointed out in an article where he actually he referenced a, a bankable study that on the order of about three times the normal, uh, healthy non-athlete insulin sensitivity. So we are really good at, at reacting to changes in, in our, in our insulin activity, uh, which goes hand in hand with the fact that we have really good blood glucose control. That's, that's simply how we roll. And if we look at a paper back in 2012 by Esther Felix, she cites that this higher oxidative capacity that we incur because of our chronic, you know, our consistent exercise training actually attenuates what is termed lipid-induced insulin resistance. And this is just uh, typically fat in the muscle is associated with insulin resistance. But this is in people with low oxidative capacity, not endurance athletes. Endurance athletes can actually pack a fair amount of intramuscular triglyceride stores, so fat in the muscle cells, and still maintain our high level of insulin sensitivity. We can get away with quite a lot. But all of this assumes that we're achieving energy balance. You know, we're not drastically undernourishing. We're draw and in the case of metabolic disorder, we're not drastically overnourishing. We're not spiking insulin on a too frequent basis. You know, all these, all these, all these things that need to be reasonably idealized. It assumes that we have a high dietary quality when appropriate. We can get away with eating a lot of garbage on the bike, but off the bike, not so much. Not, not, not unless, you know, we want to flirt with these issues. And the, the idea that I train so much, I can eat anything I want it stands up in certain contexts. One of those contexts is weight loss. You know, I mean, you can do the math and eat 2000 calories of Twinkies a day and work out the same oh, amount and hold body terrible. weight constant. 
but it's not going to do good things for your metabolic profile. How many Twinkies and, and is that? Some, somebody, somebody quickly on YouTube comments, <laughs> let us know how many, <laughs> yeah, can somebody figure nobody, out how many Twinkies, 200? Or nobody how, should know how many calories are in a Twinkie <laughs> off the top of their head. <laughs> Nate's working on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So some examples of how we can get it wrong, even as endurance athletes are Tim Noakes, who, who is a very reputable author. I mean, a very knowledgeable man, I believe he's a PhD or an MD and, in uh, Cape, Cape Town, where we're going. He's a longtime marathoner and he was diagnosed pre-diabetic way back. And then, you know, he's kind of gone off the deep end since then, but he's drastically re revised his diet and he's a much healthier human being and still a very good athlete. Peter Atia, also an MD, long distance swimmer, runner, cyclist. I think he's done like some rowing thing. I mean, the guy is active, trains three to four hours a day, still managed to, to develop insulin resistance. So we as endurance athletes are definitely not immune to the effects of poorly orchestrated, poorly delivered, poor quality diets. 13 and a third. Uh, That's how many. 13 and a third. That's all you get for it's 2, 150, calories? Same as a hot dog or same as like a regular American beer. Um, that's what I always think of when you drink a beer. It's like the same as a hot dog and you can also think of it drink the same as a dog. Twinkie. It's not the same as <laughs> that's how many calories it is. Not all <laughs> calories are created in terms of calories. Yeah. So, I mean, 13, you do 13 beers though. Like that is something someone could do at night, like between a six and a 2 AM 13 beers. Mm -hmm. That's like eating 2000 extra calories or 13 Twinkies. If you think about it, it's crazy. I feel like that's not a lot of that. That's some calorie density in a Twinkie right there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well done yeah, Twinkie. Like thought for dense. sure you were going to say 25 <laughs> or 30 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Shows what I know. It's a Twinkie. <laughs> okay. So, so, so back along the lines of, of how we can actually still suffer metabolic disorder, even as endurance athletes, there was a study by uh, Felicity Thomas, 2016 titled blood glucose levels of sub elite athletes during six days of free living. And, and what she showed, one of the things she managed to show, it wasn't, it wasn't a great study, but that exercise improves insulin sensitivity and a number of other measures of glucose regulation. So news to nobody. Exercise, exercise improves, is awesome. improves, exactly, <laughs> in, in so many ways. In, in her study, the data was pretty wide ranging and it was a low cohort size. It was only like, uh, it was 10 athletes. That's what it was, it was very low. But it did, there were some useful takeaways. And one was that sensitivity to carbohydrate is like we were just talking about, highly variable between athletes. It, it's just, there are so many things that influence that. And then uh, what was illuminating in, in, in uh, probably a way you're not gonna encounter too frequently in other studies is they use continuous glucose monitors and they actually recognize that they offer an ability to really optimize your diet. I mean, you can see how everything you do, everything you ingest, everything affects your blood glucose on a, I think they measure on a five minute by five minute basis. So hmm. that, that's interesting. I mean, for those data geeks, and I feel like Nate's gonna go down this road at some point who wants to <laughs> see tried. every aspect. Okay, yeah. So a, a continuous glucose monitor is one method of, of doing so. It also showed us that, or it showed, showed me, here's what I took from this study is that athletes are really good at both overnourishing and undernourishing themselves. And when it comes to overnourishing, these athletes and endurance athletes especially are far more susceptible to high blood glucose levels and experience a high greater likelihood of metabolic disorder because we think we get a free pass on all these things and we simply don't. Mm -hmm. um, a number of these athletes, I think it was four of 10, actually exhibited blood glucose levels in line with pre-diabetics. And, and it, though it's a weak takeaway, one of my takeaways was that athletes can indeed tolerate high levels of carbohydrate intake, but it's not really clear 
how this might affect our long-term health. And that has to be on our radar at all times. We can't just fuel for the work required and expect no repercussions if we carry those eating patterns and habits into our day-to-day living. Right. So, so nourishing, I mean, there's, there's two components of nourishing, right? There's energy, so calories, but then there's also nutrient density too, right? So the quality of those calories, how much how much nutrition is actually coming in with the calories that you're ingesting. So we, you know, I'm sure everybody's heard the term empty calories. I would put mm-hmm. a Twinkie probably in that category. <laughs> <laughs> Although if I was really bonking, I would not refuse a Twinkie. Yeah. I'll say that. On a ride? <laughs> yeah, for real. But yeah, so I think you know, in terms of overnourishing and undernourishing, we have to remember that it's 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 not just about um, it's it's as much about energy stores as it is also about nutrient density too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anytime I say diet quality or, or uh, carbohydrate quality, that's effectively mm-hmm. what I'm talking about is the nutrient right. density. Okay. So so takeaways just to try to sum all that up is yes, indeed, we do need to fuel for the work required, but intensity relates to that that macronutrient profile. I mean, we can't just dump sugar into a system where we really should just be metabolizing fat. We can't work really hard if all we do is ingest fat and we're, we're fat adapted. So you have to consider intensity relative to your nutrient breakdown or nutrient composition. Um, duration affects that also. And then uh, high, high glycemic food has its place. I mean, th- think about immediately post-workout when you're trying to restock your glycogen stores, mm-hmm. thinking about uh, immediately prior to a ride, any ride over you know, roughly 60, 70 minutes, especially if the intensity is high for that entire time. All of these things can, can work really well. And a topic that we're going to broach at a later point is that they can do this without decreasing fat utilization. But that's a topic for another time. Next time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can come sure. Next cool. Time. Sure. Let's do <laughs> it. Totally. Okay. And then two more, um, lower glycemic. So the higher quality stuff, the more nutrient dense stuff we were just talking about carbohydrate in particular at, at all other times, you know, post-workout well before your workout, your typical meals, et cetera. And then finally, back to Scott's initial question uh, with the gels, I think palate fatigue and your level of gut tolerance or intolerance are probably the best cases against early gels on long rides, but energy provision is not. Yeah. I know people who I, I actually tolerate gel really well. And I think part of that is I've trained myself to be able to do that because it's, especially in racing, it's just, it's, it's really hard for me to like unwrap something, get it in my mouth and chew. And then, you know, it's like with a gel, you can just, you can just down it and go and mm-hmm. it's not ideal maybe, but, um, I, I certainly tolerate it really well, but I would just say like, to your point about everything being subjective, when somebody tells you, especially along the lines of bro science, um, you know, Oh, never do this. It's so horrible for you. Just remember, like, just because it ha- it's not going to work for somebody else. Like just because somebody else doesn't tolerate gels really well, doesn't mean it's not going to work for me and vice versa. And the other part of this too, that I would say, you know, in addition to see what works for you, you know, don't just take somebody's word for it. Uh, but also I think mood is a really, really big component of this too. So when you're eating enough and you have enough energy to do your workout, your mood's going to be elevated. You're going to feel better and happier. It's going to make you feel more confident. It's going to build your confidence when you finish that ride in a good mood and you had a really good time knocking your intervals out or, um, you know, knocking out the TSS score. (laughs) But I think there's so many components to fueling on the bike. It's, you know, there's obviously complex hormonal cascades. Um, and 
there's individual differences that we can see across the board. Just remember that it's really important to try and figure out what works for you. Awesome. So if you take a gel, don't worry, it's not going to turn off fat burning for the rest of the ride uh, to yeah. go back to the core thing. It's not like your <clears throat> system's just going to shut that off and you're stuck for the rest of your 10 hour ride. You are never, ever going to burn fat again. Don't worry about that. Right. Um, so that part of bro science is debunked and we got a lot of other insightful stuff. Uh, let's jump down. I, I just, yeah, please. Amber. Sorry. One more point. I just want to touch on too, which we've talked about before. I just don't want to move on before we just mention it, um, is signaling just getting fuel in the, you know, getting fuel down the hatch while you're putting up big efforts for your interval training on the bike. It's going to send a signal to your brain that it's okay to keep riding those checks because you have fuel coming in. And I think that that's really important too. And figuring out what type of fuel that is that really works for you. That doesn't upset your GI system, all those things, you know, you can, you can figure that out through some self-experimentation, but the signaling component, just making sure that your body knows it's going to have enough energy to do the work that you're asking of it is going to be really important. Awesome. Uh, let's jump down to John's question in the doc here. Uh, he says, hi, trainer road team. I have a simple question. What to do after a training camp. Now here's his context. He says, I write this from Austria, actually on the camp with a dear friend. And after finishing three big rides, plus a few recovery rides during the week, I have clocked a 1,826 TSS week. Goodness gracious. Um, so, uh, we've, uh, we've been talking about TSS pretty regularly throughout this episode. So here's another perspective on it uh, once again. And also it's worth saying, uh, we've mentioned this before, but if your FTP is inaccurate, then it's easy to get inaccurate TSS. Cause it has to, it's all based on that, right? Nate, it's relative mm -hmm. to your threshold. Yes. Uh, so, uh, this is also a good situation where if you live, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe you live at 10,000 feet in elevation and then you go down and you're riding at sea level, you'll see all some big TSS numbers most likely because you'll be riding at a very, you just have more oxygen. You'll be able to operate higher, put out more power. So, uh, this is something to keep in mind. So, okay. With that said, that's on the back of a six week average of 669 TSS. And you can see that when you use trainer road, you can just log in. That's represented on a, on a line. You can see your six week weekly average TSS, uh, that you can see going through that whole thing and your six week daily average TSS, which is pretty cool. So, okay. With that, he says on Saturday, I completed a 210 kilometer ride with 5,500 meters of climbing on no more than two hour training rides. Your platform really works. He says with an exclamation point too. So just shows. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is about training energy systems. So he says, since January, my FTP has increased from 260 to 360 and I'm at 69 kilograms. I'm at 5.2 Watts per kilogram, which I really imagined, uh, I would be able to achieve er this year or earlier this year, but following all your advice and training plans and being super consistent, the change really is dramatic. And for that, I thank you for all you do. So um, he says, looking at past articles and videos, coach Chad has said, try not to exceed doubling your six week TSS in the case of a training camp. So in this case, it'd be roughly around 1300 TSS for him. So what is the best thing to do after the camp? Uh, so he asks three days off of, off of, off of the bike recovery rides, massages, more sleeping, and then Everesting with a smiley face. I don't, I don't know <laughs> if that's a, an advisable one. Massages sound good though. Uh, so I thought first things first, cause we've been getting plenty of questions on this right now. Uh, chances are, if you had any sort of event on the calendar for the year, it either was canceled or postponed or is likely in that scenario that it's probably going to happen as well, just to, through the rest of the year. 
and folks are wondering what to do with all their fitness. So it's not wasted all the work that you've done. And one of the outcomes that we've seen a lot of people asking about is what do I do for like, a, if I want to do a training camp or something, maybe I want to build toward that and really try to put in like the biggest days I've put in or just enjoy that fitness and have some great rides. So, uh, I guess first things first, and, and actually we'll pitch this to you first, Amber, if you were to, to put together a training camp, what do you feel? Cause you do this, like you've done this with Janelle Spilker and you've done this mm-hmm. in tons of different, I'm sure team camps and everything else. What do you feel are the good things that you should have planned for a training camp? Like basic principles. Oh man. Basic principles. Uh, I think the, the most important one to remember is that you want to finish strong. So usually, I mean, if it's a training camp, chances are you're doing more than you usually would of something. So usually more volume, if you're in a group, you might be doing a little bit more intensity than you normally do. Um, but I would remember pace yourself for the whole week and have your goal in mind to really have that last day of the camp potentially even be your strongest. Cause if you really go too hard on even the first or second day and you tank yourself, and you're still trying to sustain a really high training load day in and day out, it's going to diminish your ability to get much out of the second half of the training camp. So if you really want to maximize your returns, start off a little bit easier in terms of effort level than you think that you need to and build through the week. And if you can finish that last day and feel like that was your strongest day, even though you now are under this huge load of fatigue, that's a really, really good place to be. I think you're saying like the exact opposite of what I see with most people, even myself, when I go into training camps, I'm like training camp day one. Woo. And I just go all out. Right. This is a, it's easy to, cause it's exciting Superstar. and it's fun and it's different. This I'm, and yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this sounds, I'm thinking yeah. of stage racing and especially mm-hmm. Cape Epic. Cause that's, I just want to, sorry, if you don't like it too bad. Uh, just kidding. No, we want to make it so everyone loves every episode. The, but the first day of Cape Epic is an hour long prologue. And you can think this even happened with me in the ramp test. When you go that extra, like 5% deep the next day, the amount of extra fatigue is not 5% extra. It is like twice as much. And I think people, uh, some people who I've talked to have done Cape Epic. They say that teams on that first day will totally drain themselves in that one hour. And then the, then they have like a five hour day the next day and the next day, the next day. And that just makes your whole time increase for the whole race. You, you save maybe three or four minutes on an hour, but then your whole race is way, way, way slower. Um, that's, that's good advice. Sophia says we need to win the prologue and then hold on to it every time, uh, <laughs> yeah. which might be hard, but I think maybe Amber and Brandon will probably be 95, 90% on the prologue and then 80% each day afterwards and overall have a better time. I mean, better time than if they were to go hundred percent. And then you just like get mm-hmm. worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad when you're at the end of a stage race or a training camp like that, and you're just struggling to hold on to numbers that you really should be able to hold, you know? And, and like you said, Amber, you reach a certain point of fatigue where it actually, you no longer are receptive to, to making those sort of adaptations. You just put yourself in a hole. And right. And you, you also put yourself at risk of injury, which is a really important thing to remember. Cause if you're riding a lot more volume than you're used to, that's more strain on just your tendons and your connective tissue than you're used to. So, you know, making sure that you you don't put too much stress, for example, on your knees on, you know, the first climbs of the week, like you want to make sure that, you know, you're, you're picking an easier gear than you think that you need to, you're maintaining maybe a little slightly higher cadence, maybe lower power output, um, really eating and drinking more than you think you need to, you know, you just 
keeping in mind, you know, you want to be present in the moment, but you also want to be planning ahead for the fact that you now have maybe six more days of this. Mm-hmm. And that can also take a really big toll on both your your mental capacity. I mean, your your cognition mm-hmm. and your coordination. I mean, I'm thinking back to Nate's breaking of his rib. I mean, what led to that? High levels of fatigue don't exactly facilitate high quality riding. I mean, you're not going to make... <laughs> you, he just threw the horns you're, for you're, those listening to the podcast. I was doing something I yeah. shouldn't have done. I went off and jumped into a berm. No, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. But I mean, if you had been on one of your fresher days, do you think you maybe would have had the coordination to find your way out of that? I was super Or crushed. the presence of mind not to do it in the first place? I don't know. No, I was, <laughs> I was on the end of a recovery week on an Fair e-bike. Question. So I was like, this is easy. I, but it was, Chad brings up a really good point, though, that yeah, your, your decision-making drops mm-hmm. down. Like, yeah, that's, I'm sure that's why I I don't remember it, uh, which is, this is like a severe example, but I'm sure that's why I crashed at single track six and and DNF that uh, stage race uh, with a concussion, like severe crash, right? Really bad. That's the sort of thing you absolutely can't afford to have. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. and you're, and I'm sure that it was fatigue mounting up that made some sort of decision because it wasn't a particularly difficult area, just really high consequence and it can bite you. So, and it's fun. It doesn't have to be a race. It can totally just be a training camp and you just make silly decisions because you're not thinking straight because you're too far in the box, you know, that after that whole week. So it's, it's definitely something to, to, to keep in mind. And man, it's, it it also makes the week much more enjoyable when you have something to look forward to. It's really hard. I've been at, uh, whether it's like team camps or whether it's been stage races, anything else. And when you are completely worked after the first one and you don't even want to think about racing again or riding your bike again, oh, that's really hard. That's just a guarantee to make it a lot more, you know, a lot more difficult. Hence Chad's decision of every other day in single track six. It was brilliant. So, which they actually adopted by the way, the following year. Um, so I'm going to take credit for that. I yeah. think it at least affected <laughs> that decision for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, with that, uh, Chad, his assumption or the question of basically doubling your two or, or your, your six week, uh, weekly average TSS and not exceeding that, do, do you, you know, is that something that you would recommend now? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a safe benchmark or, uh, I don't want to use a particular term. Uh, it, that's probably a safe place to stay. It's not to say you can't exceed it. Uh, I do think there's a bit of mathematical error here and FTP reassessment in the works. And I don't know how much that's changed based on the, the six-week average versus what you did during this camp. But let's push all that aside and just imagine that you could basically triple it. Then you just have to kind of, you got to ride that wave. You got to see what happens. Now, you're going to learn something from this. You're going to learn, oh my God, I can I can jack my volume way up and get a big return on it. Or... I can completely bury myself and be useless for the next three weeks, in which case I'm going to go backwards. And that FTP that I was so proud of is now 20 watts lower, which is very, very realistic if these numbers are even close to accurate. Yeah. If, however, you're emerging from this feeling pretty okay, even with the newly assessed FTP and all your numbers back in line, maybe this is something you you can do. Maybe the constitution or the composition of this riot, uh, this training camp, the way you structured it, the way you nourished, the way you recovered, maybe you got everything right. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a light shown on a new aspect of your performance capabilities. Yeah. Uh, the, this is, uh, the point of you'll you'll find out you're, you're riding the wave and you'll find out what sort of wave it is after this is a really, <laughs> is a really good one to, to keep in mind. Uh, one, one thing too, to, 
to keep present with this. And I think that this is written down in our notes, like make your training camp specific to your needs. That's also a good way mm-hmm. because once again, we've talked about this in the beginning of the podcast and throughout, not all TSS is created equal, right? So uh, you may have a training camp where it's relatively low TSS, but if you're a sprinter and you're really working on sprints and this is like a sprint camp for you, that's what you need to do. Or, you know, flip it on its head. If it's, you know, on the other end of the spectrum and it's a long, slow distance sort of camp, that is what it is, right? And you may not rack up that much TSS. You may rack up a lot, forgive me, but the goal is that you're building or using that time to build specific things that can be hard when you're doing it with a group. But if you can do that, you're just, you're, you're stacking the deck in your favor to get the benefits that you really need out of a training camp. Mm-hmm. What do you guys feel about stage races, the amount of TSS to have coming in before something similar? You mean in terms of tapering for a stage? No, race? like, uh, so I just did Cape Epic and it was like, if we did 300 a day, which I think spaced out over eight days, the first day is less, but everything else is more. Makes sense. Yeah. That's like twice as much would be 1,200. Three times as much would be 800. Because, I mean, you don't want to go into Cape Epic with 200 TSS per week, right? Just off the top of your heads, do you, do you have a number that you would think that you'd want to have coming into a stage race? Because I mean, we're not going to be able to have a one-to-one, right, ever for these big stage oh, no, races. No. no. Amber, but for you, you probably did have one-to-one for a lot of stage races you did. Most of the, I mean, on the road, most of the stage races were such high intensity and over such a long, you know, three and a half, four hours a day over a week, it's really hard to, you you really can't recreate that in training Mm -hmm. effectively. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't really either. Um, In some cases we would sort of know, like, especially if I was doing maybe three stage races back to back, which did happen. And that was a lot. Um, I would know that I might need to be a little bit flat coming into it. So I might need to rest a little bit more than I would to want to be like, if, if, if I were tapering for a one day event, I would want to be really sharp on that one day. But for a stage race, if I'm sharp on the very first day, I'm going to be digging a really big hole, especially if I'm doing three back to back. So I might want to actually overrest a little bit coming into it, knowing that I'll be a little bit flat for the first part of the first stage race, but that'll help me make sure that I'm not in too deep a hole by the end of the third one, for example. But that's a pretty specific scenario. Yeah, we've talked about this even in the context of like a single day event like Leadville. It's really not necessary. uh, I think this was two or three episodes ago. It's not necessary to, to, you know, if you're doing a low volume plan, then suddenly you see a big spike because of your events there. You don't have to worry oh, yeah. about that. It doesn't have to be a steady ramp and just like, you know, an, an, an even step on, on that TSS chart off to your goal event. And it's just not going to be productive. If you guys are trying to prep for Cape Epic and you're trying to ramp up to that sort of TSS, uh, mm-hmm. even if you didn't have jobs and you just, you know, had whatever all the time in the world, it still would not be productive. You, it'd be so tough to put that much strain on your body, I would think. So... Mm-hmm. Those are big days. Now, this is this is new territory. A fair amount of this is going to have to be somewhat theoretical because we haven't ever done anything like this. I mean, we made a crack at single track six, which was six days in a row and similar in certain ways, but none of us got through it first off. And, and you know, some of us, I mean, I fell apart on that first day, recognizing that I wasn't going to be able to do it three days in a row. So I was going to have to take a day off right now. Um, Jonathan got almost through it, but got to the point where he was so fuzzy, he made a mistake that he probably wouldn't have otherwise made. I mean, we're, this is definitely a learning process and I will give some thought as we get closer to it, to what sort of TSS or what sort of, uh, geez, I don't know what, what 
sort of metrics or need to be in line for me to feel confident about this, but it's still going to be very much a guessing game. Um, Mm -hmm. Amber too, Amber's done this like (laughs) on the road race many times. The the only, the one difference is, and I, I don't, we don't talk about this enough is that mountain biking for five hours in a row has this all other body strain that is not measured by kilojoules that mind strain. Yeah. That, uh, Mm -hmm. I, I, Chad personally, I want to, before coming into it, do a four to five hour ride and not feel totally trashed physically upper body the next day. Um, that's that, very reasonable. That, if, we, if we haven't got that in our back pockets, we're, we're screwed. I don't have it now. So <laughs> yeah, you don't it's, it. it's got to happen. We've got nine months to develop. Yeah, that. yeah. But that's just something to, to think about that I think people don't talk about enough is the, the upper body recruitment for mountain biking is a lot. Road, it's some, but mountain biking, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any kind of off-road work, you're going to want to, I mean, doing just, you know, core stability and even push-ups. I mean, let me, I'll be the first to admit, like I am the worst at push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be really good at them when I was a swimmer. I cannot really do them to save my life anymore. But I mean, you want to have that upper body stability and not just, you know, in the upper body, but just to hold your body in position on the bike for five hours is a lot. I mean, not even including the pedaling and the cognitive load and all of that, but just without destroying your back and your arms and your, even your grip strength. I mean, all of those things really start to fatigue after a while. And those will be, obviously those will add up very quickly over the course of a week. Oh, for for sure. Forgive me. One thing too, with this, and I said the increased, you know, mental load of mountain biking like that. I don't mean to say that it's not there with road riding too. Riding in a group is extremely mentally taxing, especially like for you, Amber, when you're trying to manage like GC hopes or anything like that, because then you're trying to keep track of specific riders and specific teams. And it's really complex too. It's just a different- trying to do that time cut math every day. I can't <laughs> tell you. Yeah, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Seriously. So it's, it, it's like a very different form of stress and on the mind and the hard thing with mountain biking. And if you think about it, like this seems really small, but when you hit that embedded rock in the ground, that's not very big, it's just small, but when you hit it, it interrupts your pedal stroke and you just kind of have to like, you know, it bumps your body up a little bit and say you hit 30 of those a day. And then you put that, you know, throughout your day and then throughout the week. And essentially every time you do that, you're more or less doing like a mini, mini, like squat more or less, where you're just pulling yourself up off the bike a little bit and doing that. It basically like, imagine how tired you've been at the end of, or at, at, during a race. And then at the end of that race, basically just get to the point and say, okay, now do 30 squats. Like you would be exhausted yeah. and hardly able to do them. Yeah. Right. So it really does have an effect on, on you. Like the smallest things I feel like on stage races and on training camps, you really have to go about it. If you want to enjoy it to the max, think about efficiency. That doesn't mean that you can't, you know, mm-hmm. just go crazy every once in a while on a hard segment with your friends. Uh, but if it's a training camp, but you really like efficiency makes it more enjoyable. That brings up something I think yeah. people might not be aware of, John. It's, you know, when you do a dropper post on a mountain bike, every time you sit down, that is a squat, but there is one dropper post now that you push a button and it goes down. So you don't have to squat each time. It just doesn't yeah. have much drop. I don't remember the name of that dropper post. Do you? Well, it's yeah. And it's not, and I don't know if it's actually in production for any bike other than BMC. Mm-hmm. It's like a proprietary one that basically like you push one lever and then it uses a charged little, like a spring 
and the spring pushes it back up, I think. And then the air ends up letting it down. One of the two super clever. And it's really smart. I think that it would save a lot of energy, especially for a person like you, Nate, because you have to run a really, really tall dropper because of your long legs. Um, and because mm -hmm. the ways bike geometry work for a person of your height, a, a taller dropper is much more necessary for you. So, you know, Nate's going to be doing a pretty deep squat every time he drops his saddle, which is going to hurt him over the course of that for sure. Yeah. I'm so, doing, yeah. going to a 205 millimeter one up, uh, mm -hmm. dropper. Right. I want to just jump back in, um, getting back to the question real quick in terms of Nate, going back to your question about like how much TSS should you do? Um, you can, I wouldn't do this anywhere close to a big event, like a stage race or a multi-day race that you're preparing for. But if you're preparing for something like Cape Epic, or it's a multi-day event, you know, it's going to be a much higher TSS load than you're, you're used to. Um, pretty far out from that, what you can do is, is set up one of these kind of self-organized training camps, um, where you really lean on the volume for your TSS. So you're going to bring the intensity way down again, because you want to finish strong at the end of the week. You don't want to blow out your knees and your tendons. Um, but you can, by leaning on bigger volume, really get a high TSS week. And that can help you stress test other aspects of what an event like this might be like. So, you know, trying different things with your nutrition, getting a feel for what, it, what are the things five days into seven days that are really getting on your nerves? Like <laughs> what are the things that are really taxing you cognitively and emotionally? Um, and kind of figuring out those stress points can be really helpful because there are a lot of ways that you could minimize those for yourself in an event. Um, uh, but knowing what those are can be really helpful. Um, you know, nutrition, what's helping you sleep, what's not helping you sleep. What are the recovery methods that are really working for you? Um, kind of what are maybe some mantras that really work for you at the end of the day when you're really tired. But I think the key to that is in order to get that big KJ week or that high TSS week, you have to be willing to bring your intensity down and then lean on the volume to get that, that, that load. Um, and then that way it's, so you're not going to be completely able to recreate the race scenario in the sense that you're not at race pace. Please don't try to go do <laughs> space for a week and recreate the scenario ahead of time. But if you have enough time to recover from that before your event, like well before your event, then that's something that you can do to try to kind of stress test everything, your equipment, mm -hmm. your shoes, hotspots in your shoes. You know, oh, maybe yeah. they're comfortable for three hours, but five hours in, they get really uncomfortable. Your chamois, your shorts, your kit, all of those things can be sources of discomfort and distraction. And then figuring out what those are and trying to eliminate those can be really, really helpful. One thing that I came across to that point, Amber, in single track six was the fact that on day three, my hands, so I, first of all, I was not smart and I spent a week in Whistler and got massive blisters, but a week just riding <laughs> the bike park nonstop. So I went into the race with bad blisters on my hands, which oh. ended up making things worse, but I got new blisters on my hands because of that very thing, because I didn't realize how much I would be using my suspension lockout and my dropper. And I was using it so much that my hand was just, it was doing reps down there and my hand was fatigued and sore. But then on top of that, I, I wore massive blisters into my hand from using those levers. And, uh, that's the sort of thing that you don't need to necessarily ride at race pace, but just making sure that you're putting in the necessary time. If you can't even do a mm -hmm. camp, just at least make sure that you're training on that bike to make sure that you're getting some, some, some time in to figure that out. So and th this is one thing too, that, uh, I think that 
for a lot of us that don't have races on the calendar because of COVID and everything else that's going on in the world right now, <clears throat> this is a great chance for you. Maybe if you have aspirations of doing something like this, make your own fake race like this or in, mm -hmm. make your own camp and you put it on plan builder as a, as a race. I usually do it as a B race and I can just lay it out like that. And that's how I'd have a training camp laid out. And then your training plan will adjust for it. It's awesome. Uh, it's a really good way to be able to manage it, uh, with a product and keep your plan in place. So, um, yeah, we should touch on recovery. Cause that was a specific question here that I don't think we've gotten to yet about how to recover from something like this. Um, and I would say, I, if, if it were me and I've done, I've done big volume camps like this, um, exactly as I've described where intensity comes down, volume goes way up. You're in four digit TSS for the week. Um, I really go easy on myself for about a week afterwards. So I'll give myself the option to ride if I want. And some days I really just, you know, my legs are aching. They're sore. I know that if I go out and spin my legs, it's going to feel so much better. Um, in which case, you know, I would prefer to ride to a bakery. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but giving myself the option to not ride too, if, if that's just ride, don't ride. But I usually give myself like a, a week's worth of rest and recovery. Um, and I do try to focus a lot on making sure that I'm getting a lot of nutrient dense foods to replenish whatever may have been lost during that, during that camp. And then I would say, Possibly more important than that is during the camp, setting yourself up to recover well from it, which really goes back to sleeping well and eating well. So making sure that you're eating enough on the bike, making sure that you're keeping up the nutrient density and quality of the foods that you're eating between rides. So breakfast in the morning, your dinner at night, making sure you're not just, you know, going on the pizza Twinkie train. <laughs> um, <laughs> but all of that, all of what you do during the camp will set you up for higher quality recovery the following week. And then the following week, really just let yourself sleep in, get plenty of sleep. I would say sleep and nutrition are probably the two biggest components of this. Um, and then just mentally, you know, just spend the whole week patting yourself on the back. Yeah, there you <laughs> Seriously. Go. One, one thing, one tip that I would have is find a Pete <clears throat> and bring a Pete to your training camp. Uh, because, uh, and I think this is why Chad actually has like the biggest ace in his sleeve here. If anybody, like when you go on training camps or trips with Pete, he cooks amazing food. He makes sure that it's shopped and it's all prepped and he like serves the food and he's super in, for those that know Pete, he's just one of the kindest people and, and really caring, but to, you know, ingest really, uh, don't take advantage of a friend like that for sure. But <laughs> if you have that sort of, if everybody going into it knows like, Hey, it's super important that we spend time recovering, uh, during this thing. And when we allow for that, if everybody's on that same page, that can really help and make the training camp much more enjoyable. So, you know, many hands make light work and, you know, it's amazing what just everybody pitching in for a very short amount of time, you can get that dinner done, get the dishes done, everything else. And everybody can just fully relax rather than letting it sit on just one or two people. Um, and hopefully that's just not yourself. So that'll be really tough. Let's say, how do you, or what do you say about going into some live questions? Want to do that now? Cool. And then Amber, we're going to get to a question next week too, uh, that you prepped a lot for, but we didn't have time for it. And it's about, uh, athletes and getting lightheaded. So stay tuned for mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so first one, do you have any tips for practicing or implementing very slow cadence pedaling for super steep Hills? I have a few climbs on the horizon and I can't compete unless, uh, or that I can't complete unless I stay at 40 to 50 RPM. 
can I write up the grade without buying an upgrade? <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. So, I mean, first answer that we always give on this is gearing, right? But, uh, if you can't get the gearing training at 40 to 50 RPM chat, is it advisable, not advisable? Yeah. Making <clears throat> slow force work and mountain biking. Well, let's just, let me put it this way. Mountain biking makes a strong case for slow force work. Because regardless of your, your, your gearing, there are some things that you will be able to ride if you can muscle a big gear slowly. And if you want that, that possibility, then you have to, you should train it. It's slow force work can be dangerous. And I know it always gets written off as this knee wrecking sort of endeavor, but it doesn't have to be you, you, you taper in or work your way into it, progress into it, I guess, just like you would with anything else. I mean, slow force work can be 80 RPM and then 70 and then 60 and then 50 and then 40. I don't know that I would ever do it at, at high resistance levels. I mean, typically if you're pushing yourself at 40 RPM up a climb, you're not cranking out 120% of your threshold. You're probably working at something close to, or if not, if not below it. And, and it doesn't matter what you're going to encounter on the trail anyway, training it, why inflict injury on yourself if it's unnecessary. But I have been, I think this is especially pl applicable to sweet spot work. I've been doing it on, on some of the sweet spot workouts, if for no other reason than to kind of lend some variety to otherwise long intervals, but also because I know this is something I'm going to have to apply and I'm probably going to apply it in the 80 to 90 ish, uh, percentage of FTP range too, which is where I'm going to live on a lot of climbs. I suspect until they get really steep, in which case I, I may be walking, but I would like to know that I can stay in the saddle and work my way up it at maybe as low as 30 RPM without, you know, losing the muscular capacity without blowing out my knees because I trained effectively and, and appropriately. Nino walked a little bit at Cape Epic, so you'll probably walk too. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be <laughs> walking. I'm sure there are going to be some cases where it makes sense bioenergetically to, to get off. And for you two, I, I don't know if you know this. Well, I'll ask, what size front chain ring are you going to run at Cape Epic? Super good All question right. because it's fast at times. I might do no a idea. new eagle with a 52 in the back. I might do a 34 on the prologue and then 32 on every other day, depending on the day. And I might switch between those two. Super easy to do too. Four, four bolts. Like yeah. Do you have to, do you have to change the, uh, chain if you go between 32 and 34? Like I, you can, you can get, get away get between, without it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It, it won't be ideal. Um, so Nate. You always care about every single watt. So if I'll just I were switch you, chains. Exactly. Just deal. bring yeah. in the, just bring yeah. another train. Um, chains, two rings. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's not a, you can get away with it, but it's probably not advisable. Eight chains. Especially Three if rings. you're using like, <laughs> if you're using Eagle or anything like that, it's pretty picky on the chain length slash like B tension, also the derailleur. So, uh, it really changes. And I, I bet XTR is similar. It's just a, the product of that really wide range cassette. Yeah. If it, if it isn't precisely dialed in, it can be the shifting performance can suffer. Would you have to adjust your rear derailleur at all going for to a 32 to a 34, if you have the correct length chain? No, you shouldn't have to. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. yeah, I think that the only time that you would adjust things is potentially if you haven't changed the chain, but, um, even then, yeah, it's, it's kind of negligible. One, I do this every year, Chad, with working my way in with this sort of work, because also, once again, for Cape Epic, but plenty of us, you're riding blind at Cape Epic. So you are going to find yourself when you come around a turn and suddenly you've got to push a big gear or, you know, you've got to go around somebody because they bobbled. And as a result, you're going to have to really muscle a bigger gear or something like that. 
and, and Cape Epic or not, we all come across those scenarios, even on the road, but especially on dirt. So I usually work this in particularly like right in the beginning with, and it's a great way to make intervals go by pretty quickly when you're talking about, especially like sweet spot base, when you're getting in at lower intensities and I'm talking on days like, you know, Baxter and that sort of stuff where it's like closer to 60%, 70% of your FTP. <clears throat> That's a really good opportunity for you to say, I'm going to spend the next three minutes at this RPM. I'm going to spend the next three minutes at this RPM. And you can just kind of break it up that way. And it pays off massively, I find. Because I, I have like a, and I get this comment on my Strava quite a lot. People are like, wow, your cadence was all over the place. And it's because I, I can. And, and, it's, mm -hmm. and so why not use it? And there are tons of times with mountain biking in particular where that proves really helpful. So it's a good skill set, And I'll just say that I know a lot of athletes, like when I was racing, who lived in Belgium, which is, there's not huge, long mountains to go climb. They have shorter, punchier climbs and a lot of flat and they would train at low cadence and be phenomenal climbers. So this is certainly something that you can use, um, to, to train your climbing, especially if you don't have that kind of terrain or you're training indoors. Um, and the other piece I would just add to this is having had some knee issues in the past. One of the things that really helps preventatively is to do some eccentric work. So, uh, this would be sort of like at, if you're walking downstairs, walk downstairs really slowly with all of your weight on one leg at a time. And what that does is it contracts the quad while it's lengthening and that's an eccentric contraction and that kind of stress on, for example, the patellar tendon in the knee can be really helpful in pre preventing in injury. So long as you're not doing it, so long as it's not painful when you're doing it, but adding in some kind of kind of PT work like that on top of doing uh, progressive, like, as Chad was saying, and as Jonathan was saying, you know, progressing to lower and lower cadences, uh, that can be really helpful as well. Sure. Yeah, not on the trail. If you do this on the well, on the dirt, outdoors, working at those low RPMs really, really focuses on balance. You get really good mm -hmm. at managing your balance it, 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 with with really low speeds, and that is a vital skill to have. Another tip on that is to... Keegan did this in the video. He looked at me as I was going through technical sections at a very low cadence, and, or a very uh, low high. gear, so high cadence. And what happened is, if my wheel slips at all. I get in this bad spot. And he said, actually, what you should do is you should downshift two gears, go on a slow cadence. You can kind of even out your pedal stroke more. And if you do slip, it's not such a big deal um, to get through. And it is like night and day easier to get through technical climbing sections at a low gear. I always would used to like downshift, go, 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 and go to like 110 and try to spin yeah, up and then it would slip and I'd be done. When mm -hmm. we pre-rode the Carson off-road course a couple of years back, Pacey McKelvin, McKelvin pointed that out to me early on in the ride. I was having a heck of a time because I was turning too quick a gear. And he said, shift down a couple. And my control changed night and day in, in, in 10 seconds. Yeah. So, and the reason for that is you have less, uh, less torque, available torque, so to speak, in terms of spinning that wheel. If you're down in that tiny gear, your force really makes that wheel spin quickly. And that's what you don't want, right? Because then you'll lose traction. But then the other thing too, is you have more opportunities for pedal strikes. More revolutions of the pedals means more times that your pedals are down. So that's why even like in rocky terrain, it's almost always better to carry a higher or carry a lower cadence. So shift those gears. So then you're, you know, sitting a little lower in the cadence range and it'll be way better for you. Also with that on a full suspension bike, many times, if you shift into a smaller cog on the back, uh, it'll also change how the suspension works many times and it will make it smoother. Uh, it's because of anti-squat and anti-rise and how they're affected by the 
by the size of the gear in the back. But effectively, a lot of the time, it makes things a little bit more plush if you are in a smaller cog in the back. So it's another perk for that. John, can we do question three? It's Chad just absolutely on it. crucial. Yeah, it's very necessary. He says, uh, <laughs> "What training methodology is Chad using to look younger throughout the lockdown?" <laughs> oh, thank you, Greg. Your membership is now comped. <laughs> just, uh, I think, enjoying myself, getting a fair amount of time in the sun via yard work, and a really, really wide, varied mix of training. I mean, I, my, like I said, my stress load is actually pretty high, maybe even higher than it's been in quite some time when I focus exclusively on cycling, but it's been really enjoyable. And then of course, uh, sleeping and nutrition play into it too. But, uh, largely I think I'm just enjoying myself and getting a fair amount of time in the sun, which is probably something that a lot of people are bypassing with, with lockdown. Lockdown does not mean mm. you have to stay indoors all day, get out, sit on the porch, work in the front yard, whatever. How yeah. much, uh. How much running were you doing? And then are you going to stop running completely? I've stopped running completely. And I was only running three days a week. And we weren't doing, we were doing between three and five miles. So the highest end of the week would be probably a couple threes and a five. So like 11 miles. So it wasn't much at all. And it was typically pretty easy. So the running wasn't a big component, but it was enough. And then we would usually couple that with strength training. The run days and the strength training days were the same. And then uh, outdoor mountain biking and outdoor uh, indoor road riding. And now indoor mountain biking. (laughs) Yeah. That's 11 more miles than I've been running per week. So (laughs) Chad's just, Chad's just been living in 2022 the whole time while we've been stuck here in 2020 because he's getting ready for our our Ironman challenge that we're going to do. So, which actually, I think I'm going to start once I get, uh, past my, my goal, my a event, which is just my own race that I've made up my own stage race this year in September, I'm going to start run training. Um, so that'll be fun. And we're not doing this till 2022. You guys know, right? It's not oh, 2021. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to run, uh, one quarter of a mile and do that for a month. And then I'm just going to keep stepping up. <laughs> not bad. I was actually going on long walks and I like my it band tightened up just walking with my family. <laughs> yeah. So this is not good for running. We are Uh-oh. so embarrassing cyclists, yeah. man. We just get so one, like, you know, unidimensional, just completely locked yeah. in. So uh, with all of that, thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of the podcast. I have a couple homework assignments for all of you. Number one, if you, uh, haven't used outside workouts yet, give it a shot. It's awesome. You'll love it. Uh, so, and then make sure that you tag us, use the hashtag get faster outside and share a picture of it on Instagram. We'll pick some more winners for swag packs next week. The next thing is to subscribe to the successful athletes podcast. You can do that. There'll be a link below in this podcast description on YouTube or whatever podcast app you're using, or you can just search successful athletes podcast and it should pop up. And then the final bit of information or uh, final request that I have is submit your questions at trainroadcom slash podcast. With all of that said, thanks everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye.